In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee, heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O treasure of every good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse us of every stain, and save our souls, O good one. Those of you who decide to leave early, you can take a book there that we've produced on some practical things about the faith. And also at the back, we put into an order the simple prayer rule given by Saint Seraphim of Sarov. So we've got it here for you. Makes it easier for those who would like to follow that. So you're welcome to take that. We now come to the next talk on prayer. If you remember correctly, we used a lot of the information given by Saint Theophan the Recluse, who was a Russian saint, but also we used Saint Ignatius Branchinov, another Russian saint, and a few other fathers as well. I forgot to mention in the last talk what the icon in the front was, and as a result of that, we couldn't put it into our new talk. So what we did instead is we changed the icon to Saint Theophan the Recluse for the last talk, but for this talk we're going to have this icon. That icon there is Saint Nectarius as a layperson, and he's speaking to a saint, from what I understand, Pachomius of Chios, I think. I'm not familiar with that saint, but he's speaking to a holy elder and speaking about the spiritual life and especially obviously about prayer because there's no spiritual life without prayer. If someone thinks they're leading a spiritual life but they don't pray, they're being deceived. So Saint Nectarius there as a lay person, before he was made a monk, deacon, priest and then bishop and became one of the greatest saints in the Orthodox Church of the last century. He died I think in 19... 20, he's sitting there humbly seeking instruction from the monastic saint and as I said and I will, I will stress that especially on prayer because as we heard in the last talk without prayer there's no life and we also heard in the last talk better to starve your body if you had a choice between food for your body or food for your soul, which is prayer, better, if you, only, if you had to choose one, better to choose food for your soul because that food lasts into eternity. But the food for the body, you may feel yourself then, but one day you're still going to die. And what's the point if you've fed your body well and haven't fed your soul? The reason for a lot of depression today is the fact that people don't pray, people don't repent, people aren't leading an a active orthodox spiritual life and depression can be for many reasons and not that can be from other reasons too that can be also physiological but in general Depression is the absence of God in the soul of the person. Where there's no God, there's no life. 
Now you might say, how come some have depression and some don't? And that's a good question, even though today we pretty much know that there is a very, very high percentage of people that are suffering from depression. It's just the statistics are so great. And I don't know how many million, even just in Australia, in America it's worse, there aren't antidepressants, even children. So why do some have it and some don't? And I, I always say those who have it, blessed are they. Why are they um, blessed? Because depression is telling the person that there's something wrong in their life Depression is telling the person that nothing makes them happy in this life. Depression is telling the person that money, cars, sex, whatever job, glory, is not going to give them anything because a lot of people that have got those things are depressed, basically a, lot, a large percentage of them. So it's telling them must be something else. And through depression, through, these, through that problem, many people have been led back to God because they go to their psychiatrist, they go here, they go there, but at the end of the day, really, we have no idea how many people have been healed through just returning to God. So, prayer is very important because it is through prayer that we enter into communion with God. So, I'm going to start the talk today on Preparation for prayer. How do we approach prayer? Let's see what St. Theophan says, and then we will go on from there. He says, prepare yourself to stand properly before God. Don't just jump into prayer after gossiping or going around one place to another in the pursuit of pleasure or doing everyday household jobs. Now, some people, when, they, when I said this last time, they got confused and they said, does that mean if we're doing our jobs taking care of our children, cleaning the plates? Does that mean that we can't pray straight after? And that's a good question, and I'm glad that... See, that's good when, people, when I get feedback, because I, then I get to understand where people can misunderstand. What the saint's trying to say is you can't abruptly go from there to there. You can't finish the plates, take off your apron or whatever, run to the icon corner or wherever you've got your, wherever you do your press, and start to pray within seconds. It needs preparation. So that's what it means. Obviously, if that's the case, then when would people pray? Because people are busy all the time, especially people that have got children, etc. Busy, busy, busy. How would they be able to actually pray if they're not allowed to go? From Of course you can, but it means you need a preparation. So let's have a look. It says here... He said, schedule the time and rouse the urge to pray precisely at that hour. Now, some people can have a set time. Some people can't, especially when you've got babies um, and children and there's all these unforeseen things that happen continually. Sometimes it's hard. Some people can have a set time, some can't. But if you can have a set time, that's good because when the time comes, your soul your heart already begins to kind of feel, you know, it's just like your body knows when it's time for bed, your body knows when it's time to eat. You know, you're kind of in the role when you're going to work or school or university or whatever, so you've got these uh, things because it's part of your everyday life. So it's like you're going on a roller coaster, it just happens automatically. So the same with if you pray every day, 
then as soon as you know that the time's coming up, it just happens where you start to feel in a mood to go and do your prayers. Another opportunity may not come, says the saint, because when we should be praying, and then we might say, I'll just put it off for whatever reason, then something might happen, then you don't pray at all, and that's not very good. Now, as I said, some people can't have set times. If you can, that's the best. St. Theophan continues and says, all of us are guilty of this sin. When he says all, he means himself as well. Though we make thorough preparations for every other task, no matter how trivial, we do not prepare for prayer. We take up prayer with scattered thoughts, distracted, willy-nilly, meaning without any direction, without planning, haphazardly, and rush to get it over with as if it were an unimportant, though unavoidable bother. And, it's, and not to have it as the centre of our life, as it should be. Now, I made a list here of things of how people prepare. Women, for example, when they go out, do take so much time to put their makeup on, which I don't know why they wear it, but that's another problem there, to do their hair, to wear the clothes. When you invite someone, we prepare by having, making sure that we've got milk or coffees or teas and snacks and whatever else. Um, uh, we clean the house so they don't think our house is dirty. So there's some type of preparation there when visitors come. Say someone's going to go for a camping trip, they have to think about what clothing they're going to wear, what type of equipment they're going to take, where they're going to go. Holidays, oh, that's a lot of preparation for holidays and people make sure that they um, find accommodation which is good for them so they don't get bitten by bed bugs. Dietary requirements to make sure that if they go on a plane, if they are they gluten intolerant, are they got black um, milk problems and things like that? People go to the um, the trouble to make sure they got the the correct clothing, to make sure they got the correct bag so that the drip doesn't rip and all your stuff comes out at the airport. Travel information, they you know on the internet they spend hours and hours looking at things and make a travel plan, and that's all that for that. Buying a car, people make sure that they look at it, get a check of it, bring a friend if they have to, uh, read some reports if they have to from these magazines which say which car's good and which car's safe if you've got children. Doesn't, there's nothing wrong with all that. So far, everything that I've said except for the makeup and the hair and all that type of stuff, obviously you're going to do that. Um, buying a computer, people look at the latest operating system, how much RAM and hard drives and the sound cards and all these other things which I find personally boring, but that's part of life. You've got to look at it. You want to buy a, a um, computer so that when you download your photos, the whole thing crashes. So then you've got the home loans. People want to make sure that they've got good interest rates, making sure that they don't get penalties, what kind of fees there are. Is there something wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. They want to know all those things. Credit cards, how much interest-free there is. People research, people look, people study. Investments, shares, what do you do? Do you buy property? Do you buy shares? With the last crisis, it made no difference because everyone lost. So, but the point there is people do look at these things and there's nothing wrong with studying um, those things. I find that people that don't investigate, don't prepare, I find that to be really incompetent. So obviously that's good. But if we do it for worldly things, why don't we do it for prayer? 
Without preparation, how can there be a gathering of thought and feeling at, in prayer? Without preparation, prayer does not proceed firmly. It just doesn't work. You can't just jump into it because your heart is cold, especially if you've been distracted all day and children crying and jobs that are intense. Some people work at high-pressure jobs and things like that, or just travelling the trains or being in traffic. Sydney traffic is really bad where you just... Um, it takes you from one place to another. It might take you an hour and a half in traffic, in the heat, or whatever. All these things cause the soul to be somewhat terrorised at times, unsettled. So then how can you just all of a sudden go and pray? It just doesn't work like that. So, he said, no, you must be determined not to fall into this sin. So he calls it a sin. Going to pray when you have not prepared yourself, all of us, he calls a sin. Under no circumstance allow yourself to come to prayer with your heart and mind unprepared, your thoughts and feelings scattered in a dozen directions. That's what he said. And what really makes it difficult is television, music, this constant thirst for entertainment, the internet, and obviously pornography, which is there. All those things, I think, makes it really difficult to pray. Does that mean that you don't watch television? Well, some of you uh, want to, and we're not a sect. We don't tell people oh, you can't watch the news or you can't watch a program or whatever. But you've got to know that when you sit and watch shows after show after show and entertainment and things like that and movies, that your mind will not be able to enter into prayer easily, if at all. Such a careless attitude toward prayer, says the saint, is a crime, a serious one, a deadly sin. Consider prayer the central labour of your life and hold it in the centre of your heart. He says that it's a crime, but he says that prayer should be the most important thing in our lives, the centre of our life. that we should give our heart to prayer. Because when we give our heart to prayer, we're giving it to God. If we give our heart to someone else or to something else, whether it's a car or an investment or banks or your Facebook or whatever else that is used today to distract people, if you put your heart in that, as, the, as Christ says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Is your treasure putting yourself on the Facebook so everyone can know your steps? Is that the centre of your life? Notice I'm not saying that it shouldn't be done. Even I can't understand why anyone would do it. So I won't, but I won't go as far as to say it shouldn't be done. I'll just give a hint and say I don't understand why people do it. Why does people want why do people want everyone to know what they're doing? I don't understand. And also it eliminates social skills because you're hiding behind the keyboard. It doesn't allow people to communicate. Facebook is really good for people that have got social problems. But that's another story which we'll talk another time. But let's go here to uh, where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. Is your treasure a person? Are you worshipping a person? Are you worshipping a rock star? Are you worshipping an actor? Are you worshipping whatever? 
If that's where your heart, your, your, your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And how can you have the worship of a person in your heart and then believe you can also worship God? There's no room for God in a heart which is filled with other things. St. John of the Latter says, When we are going to stand in the presence of our King and God and speak with him, let us not rush into it without preparation, just in case he should order his servants, the angels in other words, to tear up our petitions and throw them in our face. St. John of the Latter, which we will celebrate his memory on the uh, fourth week of Lent, we dedicate a Sunday to St. John of the Latter, uh, in the monasteries, his book is read. Uh, so I sent the uh, someone overseas uh, contacted me that heard the talk, the last, no, not this talk, the one before, 38, and she said to me that, um, oh, you know, usually people are a bit scared to read St. John of the Ladder. I don't advise people to sit down and read St. John of the Ladder like a novel. It's not. I just pick little parts. If I read St. John and the Ladder, I wouldn't understand maybe 90% of it, if, if, if not more. It's a deep book. It's a spiritual book. But we pick certain things which help us. This is easy. This is just straightforward. If we go to speak with God without preparation, then our prayers that we send up, our prayers that we send up will be taken as it says here, by the angels. Let's just not that it's written on paper. Let's just let's just say as a as a figure of speech, the prayers go up to God, and then the angels take them, screw up the prayers, and throw them back in our face. That's how Saint John of the Ladder speaks. But not only Saint John of the Ladder, all the saints of the Orthodox Church speak like that. How would you like someone to come up to you or to me, whatever I'm speaking? about myself as well, and as they're, as they're speaking to you to say, um, oh, how you been? And then you say, oh, I've been a bit uh, sick, and they're looking around like that. Yep, oh, okay, what was that? See, all right, so we get offended. So what then of God when we are going to the Creator, to our Saviour? How can we go in that way? Preparation for prayer. So we just heard about how it is important to prepare for prayer and how sinful it is to pray without the proper preparation. So what actually is this preparation? Let's see what Elder Porfirio says, a great saint, not canonised yet, of the Greek church. Elder, he just died in the 1990 somewhere, 91, I think. Elder Porfirio says the following, to speak with Christ, we need to warm up. I like that expression. I was going to use that expression, but I didn't want to use it because I thought it might be uh, impious, not, not, not uh, pious to say it in that way, warm up. But since the saint uses it, I said, oh, what's really good? Warm up, just like those who go and do sports or singing. Got to warm up their voices. They've got to exercise so they can be ready. They don't just start to sing some uh, high notes and rip their um, voice boxes open. The same with sports. They have to do warm-ups, stretches, 
little runs. They just can't start all of a sudden playing a vigorous game. It doesn't matter how good they are. Those, all those um, people when they go and do the Olympics, the swimmers, etc. You see them doing a few stretches, etc. Preparing. So, the same as people prepare in those ways, that's the same as we prepare, we have warm-ups for the spiritual life, for prayer. What does all the Porfirio say? How do we warm up? Reading of scripture. So you can read a little bit of the Bible, even a little paragraph. That softens the heart. The singing of psalms. You might sing something, if you know how to sing some psalms. Toparia, Kentuckian, whatever. Seeing the light of the oil lamp. So make sure you have it lit. That can be part of your preparation. Just seeing the oil lamp in the room shining on the icons is a warm-up, as they say. Smelling the fragrance of incense. So as you're preparing, even before you start to pray, you light the oil lamp, you can light the incense. The smell of the incense, the light of the oil lamp, or what uh, can say warm-up exercises. All this creates, he says, the appropriate atmosphere so that everything happens naturally in simplicity of heart. And I say here, what I want to add to that is, it's good to have in your homes a dedicated icon corner. What's even best is a room for those people who've got bigger houses. To have a, a, a dedicated room like they used to have in Russia, from what I remember reading, that some had special rooms where it was dedicated with their icons, their gospel, and that's where prayer took place. They invite a priest, the priest would do the holy water, the service in there, or prayers for the sick. Now, of course, today, even though we live in a supposedly better times, we've got more money, but yet people seem to live in smaller houses, so it's sometimes even hard. But it's good to have an area somewhere where we know that's where we go and pray. Number two, I, this is, I've put this list together from what I've read. The following can be used as preparation for prayer. Reading a spiritual book. Some people, someone told me the other day, I was on the phone, I think it was maybe even last night, they said they went to confession and the priest said to them, uh, because the person was complaining about the fact that he finds it hard to pray. And so the priest said to him, uh, read a spiritual book. And I said to him, it's funny that you're saying that because tomorrow that was one of the points in, in, in the talk. Reading a spiritual book or scripture, like St. Elder Porfirio said, Maybe if you can put a bit of chanting on, if you, if you have to, you might put a cassette on, or it's not just cassettes, a uh, CD. Got to keep up with the times. So you got to put a CD on, and um, you might have to, might listen a little bit of chanting, that might help some people. Uh, but you don't listen to chanting while you're doing other things. You don't listen to chanting while you're talking to people. You don't listen to chanting as you're changing nappies. You don't listen to chanting as you're cooking, unless you are concentrating on the chanting because it's rude, it's not proper. And if we teach our children to listen to chanting while they're playing, while they're fighting, while they're uh, all over the place, then those children, when they come to church, will hear the chanting and will link up the association and will do the same in the church. That's why I've said to some people that I know, don't play children uh, chanting for your children unless they are 
going to be sitting there and focused. And those people usually come to church and they listen because they know that this is a holy moment. But when your children are playing games and playing or doing everything else, at the time that the chanting's on, you're teaching the children not to respect. So they're listening to holy God or in Slavonic or in Greek or whatever they're listening to it. They're listening to those words and meanwhile they're just playing or whatever else they're doing. So, uh, but of course when you're going for prayer, you're, you're there, you put the bit of chanting on if you like. And prostrations. Prostrations, we, we heard in the last talk, as, um, they're excellent as a preparation, which we'll go on to that later on. Now, my suggestions, the prologue. The prologue, which is around three pages dedicated every day, has the lives of the saints of the day, just short little descriptions, and some other spiritual little writings there, an explanation of part of the Bible, and that's every day of the year. And I always say to people, why don't you read that? Read that before you do your prayers. Some people even read the prologue at the dinner table when everyone has finished. They sit around and with the children, if the children are even young, don't understand, doesn't matter. And they just sit there because the children feel the grace which is coming from the words. They don't understand the words, but they feel the grace. And they all sit there quietly, and the older ones, etc., and someone reads the prologue. It can take turns. That's a wonderful thing. Um, but some people prefer, rather than the prologue, some people prefer to watch television while they're reading. That's up to them, but it's not going to help. Some other books which I'm going to advertise today, Spiritual Counsels by St. John of Cronstan, Christ in Our Midst, and what, all books like Saints of the Desert Fathers, etc., all these books are wonderful books which soften the heart. Now, apart from all this, St. Ignatius continues on and says, Stand at prayer. Now we're ready now to stand at prayer. So we've done all this preparation, we come to prayer. Stand at prayer with bowed head with your eyes cast to the ground on both legs equally and without moving. A reverent outward manner at prayer is most essential and most helpful for all struggling at the work of prayer. How we stand is important. We can't go slouching unless there are physical problems. Respect is respect. This especially applies to beginners in whom the nature of the soul is a reflection to a large extent of the posture of the body. What does that mean? It means how our body, the posture of our body is, reflects what's in our soul. If we're being like that, that's a reflection of our soul. That means we're slack in our soul. Disrespectful. Don't care. How we sit. People sit in church, one foot over the other. You don't sit in church one foot over the other. All these externals that some people say, oh, externals, God doesn't look at externals, he looks at the heart. So we've got these new theologians now that come along, lay people as well, that think that they know everything, that God only looks at the heart and doesn't look at the externals. Well, I tell you, as an ex-teacher that I used to be, I would never allow a student to speak to me slouching. I would never allow them to put their feet up on the desk. I would never allow them 
to sit like that or stand or in the, whatever positions that they stand, that, that they stand, that they're tough, except because this is a reflection of them. That means that they're being rude, insolent, disobedient, etc., etc. So you say, excuse me, stand straight, take your feet off the desk, do this, do that. And a lot of you parents say, oh, that's good, that's good. I want my child to go to a school which is strict so they can learn. Ah, it's good for that, but when we say that we should stand with reverence for God, we have a bit of a complaint and say, God doesn't look at the externals, he only looks at the internal. Now, there is a part in the Bible, in the Holy Gospels, where Christ says to the, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he didn't even call the pagans hypocrites, but he did call the Jews, the religious ones, the ones who knew the law, them he was strict with. But he never really referred to the pagans of that time in those words. Why? Because they didn't know. They didn't have the law of God clearly as did the Jews of the time. Just like today, the Orthodox Christians have the law have the church's teachings more clear and therefore those who do not abide by what they know are called hypocrites and are worse than those who don't know anything and we kind of think and we say oh I'm orthodox and I'm proud because I'm orthodox but not knowing that we are orthodox because we know the truth we have icons, we have the saints, we have all the traditions, etc., then we will give word more. And that's why Christ was strict with the Jews at the time, because they knew the law. And look what he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Didn't call the prostitute hypocrite. He didn't call the tax collector hypocrite. He didn't call a lot of other people that were sinful hypocrites because they were ignorant, a lot of them, or they were in sin different circumstances but the point is that they were humble but the ones who think they know theology like the theologians of today quite a few of them and teach wrong are hypocrites he goes you have neglected the weightier matters of the law you have neglected the more important things of the law justice mercy and faith these you ought to have done because they were too busy saying, you, you, they were teaching the people, you give 10% of this and you give 5% or whatever they were teaching the people, all these little trivial, not trivial, but smaller issues, and said this is the most important thing, washing your hands, washing the plates. They had all these rituals that they were, that they were doing. And that was part, to some extent, some of them were part of the um, law of Moses. But that's not the most important thing. And Christ is saying here, Listen to these. These you ought to have done. The smaller things, in other words, he's saying, you ought to have done without leaving the others undone, without leaving the more important things undone. And that's where St. Theophilact makes a little explanation of this part. He says, Christ reproaches, tells off in other words, Christ reproaches, reprimands them as foolish for disdaining, ignoring counting as nothing the greater commandments, mercy, justice and faith, while demanding strict observance of the lesser, of little things. 
So no one can say that the little things that we talk about, that when you take andiduro, I don't know how you say it in English, but andiduro, which is the prosphora at the end where the priest cuts up the prosphora and gives you a little piece. And, the, and in that book, I think you'll see that as well, it says any crumbs fall, you pick them up. Now some people say, oh, trivial, trivial, tri everything's trivial, but it's not. St. Ignatius now goes on. So we've done the external part of ourselves, our, our bodies, in other words, which reflect our soul. Now we go to the next thing, which is, so what is St. Ignatius, he writes three things as preparation. The first preparation, he says, consists in rejecting resentment and condemnation of our neighbours. This preparation is commanded by our Lord himself, where, he, when, where Christ says, when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your offences. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you your offences. Now, this is quite clear, what St. Ignatius is trying to say, because Christ said it quite simple. How can we go and pray if we have something against someone or if we haven't forgiven someone? or we haven't asked forgiveness of someone. How do we go and pray? And we're all guilty of that. And yet, just that can put us into hell. If you do not forgive those who sin against you, then how are you going to ask God to forgive you your everyday sins? The Holy Fathers of the Church place a great emphasis on this. I'm going to say something which is quite sad, but I have had experience with people who were brought up in households where they saw their parents fighting but never saw their parents ask forgiveness. And what I've noticed with those people, those, those children that later on grow up and become adults, that they don't ask forgiveness. It's really alien to them. They, are, they either do two things. One, that they carry on. So they, had a, so they saw their parents had a fight and the parents just carry on the next day as if nothing happened, but no one's asked forgiveness. Or they notice that the parents hold resentment and they might not talk to each other for days and days and weeks and weeks or whatever and just goes on and on and on. That's a horrible, a horrible situation and those children do not learn how to ask forgiveness so when they get married, they will carry on the tradition. They won't be able to... It will be very hard for them to ask forgiveness from those around them because they've never learnt. I always teach par parents, when you have a fight, it happens. Um, and, you know, it might be a, a temptation and you might tell each other off or whatever, or someone's rude to the other person, you must, in front of your children, say sorry to the person. And the same with the children. It was a very nice uh, example that someone told me a few years ago. They said, I told, them, I told someone that, and they said to me um, that one day they had bad nerves, they had stress, they had a lot of things, and the child did something really small. It was about maybe a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven, I don't know. So I say seven, and he told off the child. The father told off the child, ripped into the child. And then he remembered what the church teaches, and he went up to the child and he said, 
I'm sorry for what I've done. I shouldn't have done that. And the child says, no, no, that wasn't your fault. That was my fault because I shouldn't have done what I did. He goes, no, no, that was me. I shouldn't have shut up. And he goes, no, it was my fault. It's my fault. I should say sorry. Seven-year-old. See? So we teach. We teach the children how to ask forgiveness. We teach the children how to forgive. If we don't teach them that, we are sending into the world monsters. Because anyone, including myself, anyone who does not forgive or cannot ask forgiveness is a, a monster. And that's the truth. And that's why Christ said here, when you say, oh, how, how can you call someone a monster? I call myself a monster too, or whoever does it. But it says here, neither will your father, neither will God who is in heaven forgive your offences. If you don't get forgiveness, how are you saved? However, if one finds it difficult to forgive or to ask forgiveness, well, I'm, going to, I'm saying this now. If, if anyone finds it difficult to forgive or to ask forgiveness, then it is acceptable to pray. Now, you might say, but, but St. Ignatius says you can't go to pray. Let me finish. It's acceptable to pray, but only under the condition that the prayer is centred on asking God's help to be able to forgive or ask forgiveness. Then it's acceptable. So you go to prayer and you say, I'm finding it hard to ask forgiveness. Please help me, God, help me soften my heart so I can ask forgiveness or that I can forgive that person who I can't stand now because they spoke to me in a rude way or they ignored me or whatever, whatever, whatever. The second preparation consists in the rejection of worldly cares. Now, how do we do this? By faith in God and submitting to God's will. Have faith in God that God can work out a lot of our problems that we're too worried about. And Christ says that in the gospel. And as well to say, God's will be done. Will my child get into university? Well, you make your human effort. Yes, you can pray. But at the end of the day, you don't have a breakdown over it. You say, God's will be done. Have some faith. Maybe it's not meant for him to go. Maybe he can't go. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things. Worldly cares is what buries us it doesn't allow us to approach god when we have too many worldly cares and what does that mean does that mean we shouldn't worry about paying our bills does that mean that we shouldn't worry about our loans does that mean we shouldn't worry about um, where we're going to find the money to service the car or whatever 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 no it means not to be overburdened about it not to have it as the center of our lives but have some faith in God as well. And read the, when we read the lives of saints, we notice how they did that. Again, this is difficult for people to do, to reject worldly cares. But they can still come to prayer. But asking God to help them to have faith and to be able to submit to his will and to be able to be free of this constant, constant worry about worldly cares. But you have to pray for that, for that to be decreased because we're not going to go anywhere if that's going to be our preoccupation. And the devil knows that, so when we're praying, he brings all these worries into our minds so that we won't concentrate on God. The third preparation consists of a realisation of one's sinfulness, St Ignatius says. The realisation of one's sinfulness to realize 
that we are sinful, which leads to repentance and humility of spirit. Now, he says, the one sacrifice which God accepts from fallen human nature is contrition of spirit. And Psalm 50, where prophet David writes, for if thou hast desired sacrifice, I would have given it. With whole burnt offerings, thou shalt not be pleased. A sacrifice unto God is a broken spirit, a heart that is broken and humble, God will not despise. Now, some of you who read the Psalms are familiar with that. Some of you who read prayer books are familiar that that is one of the prayers. Some of you are not familiar. And, and even those who read it might not know what it means. What it means is as follows. The Jews at the time believed that God was pleased with their burnt offerings when they would go and burn the animals, which is part of their law handed down by God. God did command them to do sacrifices of animals, etc. And they believed that God was pleased with that. It says here... With whole burnt offerings, thou shalt not be pleased. You are not pleased with these sacrifices. What sacrifice is God pleased with? A broken spirit, meaning humble. A heart that is broken and humble, God will not despise. God does not despise a person who approaches him, confessing his sins, realising his sinfulness, being humbled for that, that's what God wants. And those burnt offerings, they had that as a purpose, but they just stuck on that. Just like today, people say, oh, the 40-day Lent's coming up. I'm going to fast. I'm going to have no meat. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Same thing. Just like the Jews mixed it up, the Orthodox mix it up today. They take the fast as being the aim. The aim of Lent, these, these next 40, 50 days, is not to eat and that's what God wants from us and then we're happy when we do it. No, the purpose of the fast, the purpose of Lent is to bring a person to repentance, to bring a person to humility, to bring a person to acknowledge their sins. That's the purpose of Lent. These are helping us. Just like in the Jewish days, those burnt offerings helped. Helped what? Helped to lead a person to knowledge of their sinfulness, to feel pain of heart and to repentance. That's what God will be pleased with. St. Isaac the Syrian writes, If anyone does not recognize himself as a sinner, his prayer is not acceptable to God. And when we read St. Isaac the Syrian, we stand at attention because he is one of the greatest fathers of the Orthodox Church. And he wrote just one book on his ascetical homilies, and they are full of rich treasures. I mean, as I said, some of them are too deep, we can't understand, but we pick whatever is easy. This is an easy one. It's pretty, it's pretty clear. If anyone does not recognise himself as a sinner, if someone does, comes to prayer and does not have a sense of their wickedness, of their sinfulness, of their sins, and have sorrow for that and pain, then, he says, those people's prayer is not acceptable to God. This is, for some of us, this is new. People don't know this. St. Ignatius Branchinin of writes, stand before the invisible God just as a guilty criminal convicted of countless crimes and condemned to death stands before 
an impartial judge. Exactly. You are standing before your sovereign Lord and judge. So when we're praying, we are standing in front of God, who is judge as well, and he will judge us on the last day, which is today the Sunday of judgment. That one day, all of us who have already passed away will rise from the dead, we will get back our bodies, but a spiritual body, and then all of us will be will will meet where God will pass judgment, a final judgment. At that judgment, there's no mercy. Up to now, there's mercy. Those who have died, they are still open to God's mercy. That's why we do prayers and liturgies and we give money to the poor. We do panahitas, memorial prayers, mimosim, as we say in Greek. We do all these things so that we can gain from God mercy for the souls that have departed this life because they can't repent anymore. They can't work on their souls anymore. But then at the last judgment, there is no more mercy. Up to that time, as we go on with the time, God is merciful, loving, compassionate, and he's doing everything that he can to forgive, to bring people to salvation. But on the last day, a judgment on, on that last day of judgment, there is no more compassion. That's what your question was that you asked. What does Sunday of judgment? Was that you that asked? Yes. Does that help you now? I put that in for you, but it actually went. So um, people might listen to the talk and say, "Oh, that priest speaks so." so mean and so horrible and there's no hope and I don't the hope is that God forgives and that God is trying in every way possible to bring us to salvation but not only us don't think oh he's only trying to bring the orthodox he's trying to bring every single person on earth to salvation how he does we don't know even Judas after he betrayed Christ as you know, he repented, it says in the Bible. He repented for what he did. And he went and gave back the Jews their 30 pieces of silver. They said, we don't care. You do what you want. So he repented. So some people say, well, if he repented, like the Roman Catholics say now, some theologians of theirs, they said that Judas, uh, because he repented, that means that we shouldn't say that he's in hell. Repentance is one part of it, but we have to. We, we can't just be sorry for what we've done, but we have to approach God and ask forgiveness. See, people can be sorry for that. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. That's half. The other half is now to go to God and ask for forgiveness. He didn't do that. So what he did is he became despondent, depressed, out of, out of it, and he went to hang himself on the tree to commit suicide. What did God do? As he, as he hanged himself on the tree, the tree went down so that he wasn't able to hang himself. Then he tried again and again, but the tree kept on bending down. He couldn't, he couldn't. And that was what the father say, how much God, that even though he betrayed Christ, even though he did all that what he did, still even there, right to the end, Christ was trying to save him. 
When we look at that example, don't let the devil come along and say to us that there's no forgiveness and there's no way that God's going to give us um, forgiveness for whatever sin we've done. The worst sin doesn't matter because what can be worse than what Judas did? But yet, we saw how much God tried to bring him to repentance and that's why Christ washed his feet and even gave him communion, gave him the body and blood at the table on Great Thursday and he was giving him hints. He was giving him hints, do what you have to do quickly. He was trying to soften him, but Judas didn't want. So that's the same. Anyone who goes to hell is someone who persisted in wanting to go, who just didn't want to repent. We can't say, oh, the poor things, they went to hell because they didn't know, whatever. That's not how it works. God cannot put anyone into hell who he has not first tried to help and bring to salvation. And Judas was a good example, but unfortunately at the end, he didn't, still didn't repent. And that's why the church teaches that Judas went to hell, because he chose not to repent. He chose not to ask God for forgiveness. Now we go to the prayer rule. Some of you are new today. We've, we said it in the last talk, but nevertheless, I'll just touch on it a little bit. St. Theophan says, because of our weakness, it is proper to have a prayer rule. We need a prayer rule. Just can't say, oh, I'll do a bit of this, I'll do a bit of that or whatever. That's not how it works. This can consist of reading formal prayers set out as in the prayer books, which I've purchased at the back for that very reason. Prayer books are good. Morning prayers, evening prayers, compline. Some people do compline instead of evening prayers. Some people do both. Uh, they're written prayers. Without formal prayers, without these written prayers, we would not know how to pray correctly in the first place. Without such prayers, we'd be left entirely without prayer. All beginners, and I'm telling you, even people that have been in the church for 10 years still don't know how to pray, if that, they should start back again to reading their prayers, morning prayers, night prayers, compline, etc. It is advisable for those who are, who are learning to pray, especially beginners in the spiritual life, which is nearly everyone, to complete the morning evening prayers as they are found in the prayer book, for example, the Jordanville book, and also good to read canons and acathists. Some substitute the evening prayers for compline. Like I said, whatever prayers are read, or St. Theophan says, strive to complete them with as much attention and feeling as possible. Now note those two words, and I've underlined them. Attention and feeling. So that's what I want to talk about. Let's look at this attention and feeling. Let's look at attention first. St. John the Letter says, we must lock our mind into the words of prayer by force, especially helpful in holding our attention during prayer, is to pronounce the words of the prayer without hurrying. What also happens is, is, that, is to say that um, the words in audible voice. Yeah, so when you pray alone, we said last time that you should also pray with a whisper or a bit loud because when you hear your, your own voice, your prayers, you can actually concentrate on the words. And St. John says to concentrate on the words. And some of you who know, who pray, will know how difficult it is. How many people complain and say, I've read pages and pages and I don't even know what I've read. They're just, I'm reading them but it's not actually, um, I can't concentrate on what I'm reading. So that's what attention means, is to physic, to kind of um, make an effort to focus on it. And don't get into despair when you can't do it. Out of a whole prayer, or especially in the beginning, you might only feel just one sentence. 
that's still a beginning because you're still doing it and God's looking at that attempt like a child when he starts to walk or she. So walks, walls, falls, 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 but after a while it will walk. And it's the same as the prayer. We're, we're, we're concentrating and we're falling. We can't, can't focus. Our minds become distracted, etc. But what helps is just to understand that that's going to be hard and to understand that when you say it a bit loud and you hear it, it becomes easier. Now let's look at feeling. Praying does not mean repeating a certain number of words of prayer without feeling. Prayer is prayer that comes from the heart and is not just thought by the mind and spoken by the tongue. Prayer is absorbing and fully understanding the contents of the prayers within ourselves so they flow from our mind and heart at the same time. Now, we, as I said before, we read the prayers. Sometimes our minds can't even focus on what we're reading. And even worse than that, we don't even feel what we're reading. St. Theophan, I think he said, he says that we must pray within ourselves so that they flow from our mind and heart at the same time. What we have in our mind corresponds to what we have in our heart. That is that our heart feels what the mind is reading. This is true prayer. When we feel what we're reading, when we say, O merciful God who lovest mankind, you who came down from heaven to save man, save me also, a sinner. So we're feeling that. We're not just reading it, but we feel in our heart that God is merciful, that he came down from heaven to save and that we want to be saved. St. John of Cronstant in Spiritual Councils, which... Um, spiritual Councils. Now, St. John of Cronstant used to keep a diary of his thoughts. And when he was travelling, train, whatever he would he would always write in his diary and at home. Now his diary is about that, it's quite a thick book. And what they've done here is they've taken parts of his diary and put them into chapters. Now this is what's called uh, St. John of, Father John of Cronstein, Spiritual Counsels. And it says here, uh, his diary that he called, he called his diary, My Life in Christ. When I first came to the church, this was... Uh, these are some of these books that I always advertise to you are books that I first read books that helped me in my spiritual life so this is why I get these books because I want to share what these books give and these books are excellent and that's what I'm saying even if you just read a couple of paragraphs a day very powerful very easy the way St John wrote he just made it so that you can understand what he's saying. Now, St. John, I'll read one part of what he said. He says, he says, often prayer is on the lips, but in the heart there is something very different, so that by the lips the man seems near to God, while in the heart he is far from him. When you pray, keep to the rule that it's better to say five words from the depth of your heart than 10,000 words with your tongue only. And I've got an example to help you explain this. That's what St. John wrote. Now, this is my example. Okay. I will say, say to Slavka, how have you been lately? How have you been? How's your family? Everyone's well? 
Yeah. But I don't care. <laughs> Get it? So in other words, today, especially in Western society, I'm only saying that to, to um, make the point. Today, especially in Western society, that's how it is. How you going today? Have a nice day. That no one really cares. It's what's, what the person is saying is not what the person feels. And we often do that. Good afternoon. Good night. Have a nice trip. But inside of us, we say, don't give us stuff. How are your children? Oh, one of my children is sick. Are they? Okay. Oh, really? Mm. I hope they get better. See, none of that is in our hearts a lot of times. That's why I said on purpose, I don't care. Because that's what a lot of us do. We ask, we say, we make all these, we, all these um, um, things, but we don't feel it. We go to a restaurant, welcome, welcome sir, welcome madam, um, did you have a nice meal? All these things, I mean, we're paying for that. So, but people are happy with that. Even when you go to a hotel, you know, did you enjoy your stay? Did you like this? That? It's all for the money. But people are happy even listening to people that are false. So, as we do that in our, in our everyday life, that's what we do a lot of times in prayer. And that's what St. John's trying to say. What's on our lips is not what's in our heart and mind. Or in our heart. Of course I care. That's why I have your name and we commemorate every day. But I was just trying to make the point. See how, how it was, um, you were shocked? Well, that's how it is. But people don't express it, you see. So we believe that, they're, that, that, that they care. But they don't, a lot of people don't care. So as shocked as some of you got when I, when I said it, then that's how God is when we go to him and we're saying, Lord, have mercy, forgive me, help me, and all these words that we're saying, but we don't mean it. So how does one learn to pray from the heart? St. Theophan says, prayer of the heart only comes when one makes an effort. As the Holy Fathers say, God gives prayer to those who pray. In other words, we have to start and we start to pray. And actually, in the beginning, the more you pray, the more you notice, if you're praying sincerely, the more you notice that your heart is dead and that you really have not got feeling towards God, all of us. It takes so long to penetrate a lot of times the hard hardness that we have. By the way, when parents are on the phone and someone rings up and says, oh, is your husband home? And then they say, no, he's not, because the husband told her not to say it, and the children are listening. The children learn. You see, they're having lessons of saying things. Or when the children see a parent say to someone, um, oh, how's your, how's your mum? She's feeling better. And then later on, the child hears the same mother say, the, the parents say, um, Oh, who cares about her mother? You see, when we're doing those things for our children, we're teaching them to say differently to what we feel. So a lot of us have learnt that. And that's why when we come to prayer, it's very difficult because as Saint, as Elder Porfirio says, we have become a split personality. But we'll come to that in a, soon. 
Saint Theophan writes, do you wish to enter paradise more quickly? This is what you must do. When you pray, do not complete your prayer before arousing in your heart some feeling towards God. That's the purpose of the prayer. What kind of feeling? Feelings of love, praise, thanksgiving, contrition when we're sorry for our sins, reverence towards God, fear, hope and faith in God. And all these can be found in the prayer book. That's why when we read the prayer book, we get ideas of what we're supposed to feel, what we're supposed to pray for, what attitude we're supposed to have. The prayer book helps in that. But let's look at those. We had a whole list there, feelings of love. A lot of time people say, I love the Lord, and they say praise the Lord and glory to God and all these things a lot of people say. Protestants do that quite, quite a lot. But they might not mean that. Let's look at one of these things of the list. Let's look at repentance. Let's look at sorrow for our sins. In the prayer book, for example, in the morning prayers, prayer number one, it says, O God, cleanse me a sinner, for I have never done anything good in thy sight. This talks about the sinfulness, that we are sinful, that we need cleansing. Number two, the evening prayer, prayer number one. Forgive me the sins that I have committed this day in deed, word and thought. Again, centering on our sins, asking God for forgiveness. Number three, evening prayers. Uh, number three prayer. O Lord, heavenly King, comfort a spirit of truth. Show compassion and have mercy on me, thy sinful servant, and loose me from my unworthiness and forgive all wherein I have sinned against thee today as a man and not only as a man, meaning a human, but even worse than than a beast. My sins, voluntary and involuntary, known and unknown, dot, dot, dot. So that's one of the prayers in the evening prayer. See, all to do with sinful servant, my unworthiness, forgive me, because I've sinned, but I've even sinned on purpose, and I'm like a beast, etc. Number four, in the introductory prayer, like I do today, which is after the Holy God when we do the prayers in the prayer book, all Holy Trinity have mercy on us. See, have mercy on us. Lord, be gracious unto our sins, forgive us, and pardon our iniquities, Holy One, visit and heal our infirmities for the name's sake. That's the prayer to the Holy Trinity. Number five, the communion prayers. I believe, O Lord, and I confess that thou art truly the Christ, the Son of the living God, who camest into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, of whom I am first. So our attitude is that when we approach communion, that we acknowledge that we are sinful, that we are the worst. Mm, that's a bit um, something which uh, takes a lot of work to actually get to the stage to think that we are the worst. S examples from the New Testament. When St. John the Baptist first began to preach, what were the first words he said? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not give glory to God, not praise God, not thanks God. Repent was the very first word that he said. When Christ began his ministry, the first words he preached were, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He used the same words as St. John the Baptist. Again, repent. The third, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our transgressions or sins as we forgive those who trespass against us or those who sin against us. That's in the, and that's in the Lord's Prayer. Number four, one of the last things Christ said before his death on the cross was, Father, forgive them. Again, we hear the word forgive, repent, for they, don't, they do not know what they do. Number five, 
these words were spoken by Christ just before his ascension, just before he, after 40 days here, he went to heaven with his body. And it says there in the, Bible, in the gospel, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations. What should be preached to all the world? Repentance and remission of sins. An emphasis on that. Not praise be the Lord and other things that people say a lot. But repentance and remission of sins. And number six, in the Acts of the Apostles, we read that St. Peter convinced the Jews that they crucified not just uh, a criminal, as they, some of them thought, but that they crucified Christ, that they crucified the Messiah, the one who the Jews were waiting for, um, as was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. And this is what it says in the Acts. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were upset and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do for having done this sin? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What words do we see there? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins and then you shall receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, can we receive the Holy Spirit without repentance? Without that? No. Examples from the service books. In the liturgy, or Vespers or Matins, but most of you go to liturgy, when the priest says, after the great entrance, pardon and remission of our sins and offences that are scarce of the Lord. And the choir sings, grant this, O Lord. See? Pardon and remission of our sins and offences. The next one, that we may complete the remaining time of our life in peace and repentance, let us ask of the Lord, grant this, O Lord, a Christian ending to our life, painless, blameless, peaceful, and a good defence before the dread judgment seat of Christ, which we celebrate today. Let us ask of the Lord, grant this, O Lord. And another one, which is in nearly all the services, help us, save us, have mercy on us, and keep us, O God, by thy grace. Lord, have mercy. Now, there are examples from the, from the service books, which are similar to what you have in your prayer books. An emphasis on forgiveness and repentance. How about some examples from the lives of saints? Christ is in our midst, which is this book, which is a Russian elder writing letters to people, and a lot of his letters were to lay people like yourselves, who weren't monks, nuns, priests, etc. And they're very simple. Very, very simple. This is one of my first books as well. Yeah, just little letters, and they're written in a very simple way that people understand the essence of the spiritual life. He speaks about it, he says, don't worry, you know, if you, you know, you're, okay, you fell, don't fall into despair, repent, etc. It's a very, very good book, as are all the books that I advertise, actually. Christ is in our midst, letter number four in that book. It's, this father says, the paterikon, which is a Greek word for a collection of the sayings of the fathers. So a disciple came to an elder and said, Elder, such and such a man sees angels. And the elder answered, that fact that he sees angels is nothing to marvel at. But what I would marvel at, a person who saw his own sins. 
even if you just take that today, you've got a lot. St. Ignatius writes, So those who have acquired a true spiritual understanding of repentance include it in all their labours, such as prayer and fasting, and consider it a waste of day if they've not wept for their sins, whatever good works they have done on that day. The Holy Fathers had as their basis in whatever they did repentance. The greatest the Holy Fathers acknowledged that repentance was their sole occupation. That was their main occupation, what they centered on. Everything that they did was to acquire repentance. But we get mixed up. We think that the Holy Father's sole occupation was sleeping on rocks or eating dry bread or fasting for 40 days as some of them did or wearing no clothes as some of them did in the desert, in the heat or in the, um, in the cold or that they went and preached everywhere the greatest success of a monk, and I add now, all Christians, is to see and acknowledge that he is a sinner. Now, Hyamata Peter of Damascus said, when the mind begins to see its great number of sins like the sand of the sea, it serves as a setting and starting point for the soul's enlightenment and is a sign of the soul's health. That is, to me, such a wonderful teaching that a Christian you know if a Christian's progressing in the spiritual life, if they begin to see their sins are so many, as many as the sand of the sea. In other words, we just say, oh, I sin, I sin in thought, I sin in mind, in my mind, in my heart, and this and that, with my eyes, with my ears, with everything. It's just I'm constantly sinning. And when a person begins to see those sins, then the, this saint says it's the starting point for the soul to be enlightened and it's a sign of the soul's health. But what do we think, being brought up in Western society and being influenced by Catholic type of uh, lives of saints, where we see the lives of saints of them flying and stars around them and, and all these silly things, that's not orthodox spirituality orthodox spirituality is what as simple as that when people see their sins and have pain about them and are repenting over them obviously confess as well and that is the sign of a soul that's that's healthy but what does the devil tell us oh don't go and confess all those things to the priest because he'll think you're bad I don't tell him that, he'll be scandalised. Don't tell him this, don't tell him that, don't say this, don't say that, and because he won't think that you're good anymore. But the point is, the priest sees that someone's spiritually healthy when they are constantly being bombarded with sins, falling, getting up, falling, getting up. See, we don't look up to those soldiers that go to war, as I've said before. We don't look up to those who were hiding in a cave when all the battles were going on and came back with not a scratch, 
but we look up to those soldiers that came back with one eye or one hand or no hands and no legs, etc., that were in the battle or that actually underwent horrible battles and were hurt. And that's the same in the spiritual life. We are constantly in battle with the devil, with the world, with our passions. And we're going to fall as soldiers of Christ, as, as the Holy Father say. We're going to have falls. And that's what these books say. You fall, you get up. St. John Christum says, it's human to sin, but it's demonic not to repent. We also read in the lives of saints many, this is what I'm writing now, we also read in the lives of saints many examples of those who performed great miracles, such as healing, they had clairvoyance, they brought souls to the church, they raised the dead, all those who preached the word of God, they built churches or monasteries, helped the poor, and performed great acts of asceticism, like I said before. However, they would condemn themselves if during the day they did not shed tears for their sins. In other words, they considered repentance as greater than miracle working, as greater than any great work that they might do, as greater than any acts of asceticism that they could do. In other words, if they didn't drink water for 10 days, let's just say, that, and they didn't repent, they weren't repenting, then what's the point? More so, it's dangerous because they probably became proud because they're fasting in that way or drink, not drinking water. Metropolitan Yerothios writes in another book, this is a bit deeper book, so only, this is um, uh, this Metropolitan, I think he was, I don't know, maybe he was a priest. He went to Manathos and spoke to a holy elder and spoke about prayer. And this is his whole conversation about the prayer. It's a bit deep, but I picked out little, little simple things. And he says... The elder said to this, to this particular person who wrote the book, we acquire grace with repentance and the keeping of the commandments of Christ. See? We acquire grace when we repent and when we keep the commandments of Christ or when we are struggling to keep them. Many people use various methods of prayer, but we must emphasise... You see, a lot of people... They read these really deep books, Philokalias, etc. And in those Philokalias, they talk about when you're doing Jesus' prayer and the prayer of the heart, that you sit in certain positions and you put your head down and you do certain breathing and you concentrate on your heart, etc., etc. All these things which are all exercises which help in the Jesus' prayer. And a lot of people who have never even repented, don't even know how to pray properly, never, don't even keep the commandments or struggle actually get these books and start to try and practice them and what happens to them they fall into deception and here this elder saying many people use these methods of prayer but we must emphasize that repentance is the safest way it is very good therefore when crying for our sins that we feel a pain or sometimes a warmth in our heart this is the safest other things can be dangerous, even when we do excessive fasting, when we do excessive prayers, when we do things which is a bit of out of the ordinary. They can make us fall into pride and lose our souls. But this elder, this holy God-bearing elder of Manathos says, the safest is the way of repentance. 
How can we start practicing deep prayer when we haven't even repented properly? And I tell you that the majority of us have not repented properly. The older goes on. The first gift which Christ gives to the person who prays, the true gift, not gifts of joy, not gifts of seeing visions, not gifts of um, supposed other things that people feel like the um, warmth so that they go near a person and they've got warmth and all these other deceptive things which I'm going to go through, like a lot of the charismatics and Pentecostals and all, they have all these things that go on. This is not the gift of what God gives when we begin to pray. The true gift, if someone wants to know that their prayer is going on the right path to some extent, listen to what he says. The first gift which Christ gives to the person who prays is the awareness of his sinfulness. Repenting for our sins and awareness of our sinfulness are essential in the development of true prayer. Prayer that is not sprinkled, like you eat food. You make, uh, you, you know, you go to someone's place, they make some food or whatever, or your parent or husband, wife, and then the food has no salt. It's tasteless. That's why people that have got blood pressure problems, they really say, oh, it's just so difficult because they can't have too much salt. That's the same as prayer. Prayer that isn't sprinkled with repentance, a sense of our sinfulness, a pain of heart for our sins, is, is dangerous. Something's not going right. The struggler should keep his mind in hell and despair not, says Saint Siluanos. A lot of the fathers say, look, when you, when you find it hard to repent, when you're a bit dead in spirit, sometimes it's good to think about hell but despair not. Saint Siluanos, he was a Russian who lived in Manathos. I think he died around the 40s, I think. He lived in the Saint Pandalimon Monastery there, and that was one of his teachings. Keep your mind in hell, but do not despair. Think about hell, say that we deserve to go to hell, but don't despair in counting God's mercy. But let us not forget, like today's Sunday of judgment, you see, I love this, what I read in the, one of those books at the back on the Triodion, which is a, explains all the feast days of the Triodion period, and after that, the Pentecostalian, which is after Easter and after. It says in there that on the first Sunday was the publican and the Pharisee, and we saw that God accepted the prayer of the, pub, of the publican, who in those days were really evil people. They used to steal taxes from people. He accepted his prayer because he said... God be merciful to me, a sinner. Rejected the, the prayer of the proud Pharisee. The second Sunday was the prodigal son. How God forgave him that he rejected him and later on he returned. And the Holy Father say, so people don't become too comfortable. So people don't actually start to say, oh, God forgives. Let's just do, do our sins because God forgives. He's merciful. That's why on the third Sunday, to balance, because we've got God's mercy, but we have to remember there's still judgment. So to balance, because some people trust too much in God's mercy and say, oh, God will forgive everything and don't even struggle. And some people are on the other extreme, they go, oh, we're never going to be saved. Everyone's going to go to hell. So we have those two Sundays that we just had. 
they were all about God's forgiveness. And to balance so we, we don't become too complacent, as we say, too comfortable and say, God will forgive. We bring in the Sunday of judgment and say, hey, yes, God forgives, but if you don't struggle and if you don't repent, God will also is God is merciful, but he also will be a judge on the last day. And um, moreover, the awareness of our sinfulness, of our nothingness and hope in the merciful Christ are characteristic of orthodoxy and all our orthodox services, says the Holy Elder. In other words, what is orthodoxy? What's the characteristic of orthodoxy? That is the awareness of our sinfulness, that we are nothing in front of God, and that we hope in God's mercy, in Christ's mercy, even though we sin, we hope in Christ's mercy. And that's what all our orthodox services are about. And last year, if you remember, on this very day, that I read some parts from the great of the this this feast, Sunday of Judgment, and I said, and it says there, I have sinned. I can't remember now. But it says, I've sinned, O oh God, and I deserve to go to hell with the demons and the fire, etc., etc. But as a merciful God, please forgive me my sins. Always, there was always that stamp at the end. Yes, that God is just. And God will be strict in the judgment on the last day. He's also merciful. As long as we use that, we access that mercy while we're alive. And if we die with sins of some certain things that we didn't perfect ourselves in before we die, we make sure that we leave people behind that will commemorate us, give money to the poor, etc. And the last thing before the break, St Ignatius writes, the mind can see its sins only when the grace of God touches it. For someone to see their sins, it means God's given his grace. Darkened by the fall, because we're all fallen because of the fallen nature, the mind of itself is incapable of seeing them, of seeing their sin. Seeing our sins and our sinfulness is a gift of God, which is what the Holy Elder of Manathos said earlier on. Okay. Before, one or two questions quickly before the break. George. When we pray, we're to, when we repent, remember our sins. Does that go for the sins we've confessed? When like we... You have to have a repenting frame of mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, do you remember your sins that go way back, or is it. St. Nicodemus, the Athenite, who wrote a whole manual on confession, which, by the way, we have that book as well, but um, he wrote a whole manual about that very thing on confession. He says when we go to a priest and confess our sins, a lot of times we haven't really repented properly, but we go. That's why the priest, if it's a serious sin, gives us certain penances and a certain period not to commune. He said... By doing those penances, whether it's prostrations or some extra fasting or some reading or whatever he tells us to do, usually it's in the form of prostrations, prayers, fasting, and some and alms giving too. Uh, that helps for our, and also not communing for a period of time. That helps the person come to repentance. So even though the the priest reads the forgiveness prayer on the person that they've confessed, forgiveness may take more time 
two, I mean, you've read it, you've said it, but it might take more. St. Nicodemus said, sometimes we've confessed a sin and 10 years later, we might actually start to feel pain, true pain for that sin that we never really felt when we said it, we only had felt a little bit of pain. St. Nicodemus said, because you now have truly come to that repentance of that sin, it would be good to go and repeat that in confession again because the, it's, a, it's more of a sure thing because you have got that pain. So, um, yes, the fathers of the church say that we continually should be repenting of our old sins. It helps us to remember, except the sexual ones, because sometimes that arouses in us the, the atmosphere to kind of sin again. But it's good to remember our sins and always ask God to give us more and more repentance. Another question? One more? Yes? I have a very simple question. Um, in regards to also um, listening to church music and things like that, um, one question is when people are driving, and another question is when people are, let's say, I don't know, driving or something. And another thing is also when I do love singing the songs. Like, is it only when you're not doing any other activity? The um, I don't like when people play chanting with the kids in the cars because the kids at that time are distracted. So they're associating chanting with distraction. So they're looking at buildings, looking at cars, looking at kids playing outside, they're looking at the, the dog in the car next to you at the lights, etc. They're not chanting, and they're just, that's, to me, that's just teaching children to listen to holy words and just be distracted while coming to church. They're more concentrating. As for adults that are on their own in the car and they're listening to the chanting, if they are listening to chanting with uh, contrition, meaning that they feel sorrow for their sins and they're being affected in a positive way, then obviously that's different, but they're concentrating, right? Now, some people, because they used to listen to a lot of music before, some still do, but some used to listen to worldly music, what happens is that they need that stimulation, so they say, oh, I don't want to listen to worldly music anymore. So they kind of use the chanting as a way to give them that stimulation as long as they're hearing something. And then they begin to associate the chanting with the same thing and they begin to kind of, um, as if they're listening to something groovy, as they say. You know, they're actually, they're being ignited in a way, which is the same way of their music. And that's not a good um, sign. So if we are respectful of, the, of that chanting and we are focusing on that music as we're praying and we're thinking about our sins and, and, and listening to it in, with respect, that's a different thing. Is that, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Was there something else? No? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and then, the, and then there, there was one, uh, how about if you're writing something, like it's on the computer, like music on the computer, and the other one... What about if you're doing homework or something? Like yeah, uh, look, again, you can ask other spiritual fathers. This is my personal thing. I think that uh, you can't focus too well when you're doing mental work and at the same time got the chain. I think then after you begin to become disconnected. So you've got chaining going on, which is there, and then you're kind of doing your work, so you're not. You see what it says? It says here, when you pray, you focus on the words. Now, tell me this. 
Let's pretend this is a prayer book. And here's my computer. So I'm doing my assignment and I'm praying at the same time. At the end, you will need strong Panadols because that to me is schizophrenic. So you ca- how can you read the prayer and at the same time do that? So that's why in Manathos, they learn the Akathist off by heart. The monks there are, you know, and other monasteries in Greece too, probably in, in Russia, I'm not sure, but in Greece I know that they learn the Akathist off by heart. So when they're in the kitchen and all of them, all of them are working together, then they, they actually do the Akathist off by heart. You know, rejoice over And they're actually doing the work, they're cutting the potatoes, but no one's talking, no one's having conversations, no one's listening to the radio. They're doing their manual work. So with manual work, it is a bit easier. But when you're doing mental activity, I think you're going to enter into the world of schizophrenia, basically. It's dangerous. But you can ask someone else. That's my uh, thing on that. Okay. For those who found it overwhelming and would like to depart, you can always take um, the pamphlets there. If you want to take a couple for someone else, you're welcome. You know, it is painful listening to some of this. But it's painful because a lot of times, it's painful for me too, when I read things, I go, oh, I don't do that, or I'm doing that wrong. But you know what I think I say to myself? Well, I'm glad I know now. I've got to concentrate. When we become disturbed or we become too pained about it in a way which is like prideful, it's not healthy. And some people want to blame me and say, oh, look, the way he's saying that he's really rough and my priest doesn't speak like that and he says all nice little stories about Jack and Jill went up the hill and all that sort of things. But that's not, that's not the point. When you've got spiritual sicknesses, we need operations sometimes. Seeing your sins is to some extent painful. Entering into your heart can be painful. But it doesn't mean all because it's pain, we're going to run away because all we're doing is suppressing the pain in us and then it just comes out into smoking and drugs and medications and all these things trying to suppress the pain. We've all got pain in us from our sins and from our psychological problems, whatever problems it is. The more we become brave, as St. Philothus, Elder Philothus, to be brave, courageous, don't have that fear too much and say, I don't want to hear these things. I don't want to know about myself because that's not healthy. If we want salvation, we have to endure some pain. Just like when, you know, I don't like operations, for example. I think the only operation I've ever had in my life is um, the tonsils, I think, when I was young, which I remember a bit. But I've never, I've never I don't like them. I hope I don't have to go. But, ne- but nevertheless, if, for example, I have a certain pain, like a gallstone or something, whatever they're called, and, it's, and I'm in excruciating pain. I'm going to go to the hospital to have it out. I'm not, it's not going to be painless. They're going to have to open up, take it out. I've got to recover. Painkillers, it could get infected and all these things. But why am I doing that? Because I don't want to endure the pain of the gallstone because it could kill you. That's the same as the spiritual life. We have to endure the pain. But when we ask God for grace, then the pain becomes bearable. And that's why the psychiatrists that were opening up people's souls in the 60s when they were doing this psychoanalysis on people, 
and going into their past, what did they notice? They, they weren't helping hardly anyone and they actually were making people worse. And now they just use the medication, um, which some helps some people, but some people doesn't help. In Saint Elder Porfirio says that that is very dangerous to open up someone's soul because he said that can make a person become schizophrenic. He actually says that. Because they come to a realisation of what's in them and they can't cope, so they set up a fantasy and they go into... Uh, they lose reality. It's the only way that they can cope because they don't want to see what, what, what's in them. That's one form of schizophrenia. There's other forms too. He says, when you're in the church and you're struggling and praying and reading and struggling with your passions, trying to keep the commandments, then these, this poison starts to come out. But because the grace of God is present, it makes it, in a way, less uh, painful, more soothing. And the person begins to experience peace, joy, calmness, etc., and begins to say, this is the church's gift. But in these uh, psychiatric hospitals where they used to do this type of, um, and in private practice, they used to do these opening up their, their souls, that didn't work. That's why they stopped it all. They don't even do, they don't like psychoanalysis. They say, we don't want to go into the past because they, they, they created so many problems. They say now medication and cognitive therapy Let's not talk about the past. Let's just look about how you're thinking now and let's try and correct some thoughts there. And to some degree it helps. But nothing helps than the churches uh, which, is, which gives complete healing. Okay, let's begin. Someone asked me a question now. The Triodion period basically starts from the first Sunday, which was two Sundays ago, which is the Sunday of the publican and Pharisee. And they're called pre-Lenten, kind of preparation for Sundays. We are on the third Sunday. Next week is the expulsion of Adam and Eve from paradise. That's the last Sunday. And after that, we enter into Lent itself. So this book here, which is a serious book, so you've got to be serious to, to read it, it's, it talks about uh, the whole Lenten period. Even, even there was a section in here on yesterday, which was the commemoration of the dead. But there was just so much on this, all from the fathers. So it explains in detail from the fathers the whole period of Lent. That's where I got that information that I said today. And it takes you right up to Great Saturday. But it's a book which is a serious book for those who are interested to know what's going on in the church. This is what's called the Lenten Trio. This is the not the service book, but the explanation of what the Triodium period is. So the Triodium takes us up to Great Saturday. Then we go to the next period, which we call the Pentecostarian. And that takes us from Pascha 
up to all saints. If I let me make sure I'm right. All saints. I even got all saints of Russia, which is good, and all saints of Manathos, but all saints, the general one as well. So that there explains the whole period of that. What's Thomas Sunday? What's Pascha? What's the Tom, uh, the Sunday of Myrbearers, etc., etc.? What's Pentecost mean? What does all saints mean? What does the ascension mean? All those things according to the fathers. So those two are the explanations. Then the arena. The arena is the book written by Saint Ignatius Branchininov. And the reason why I like this book is because Saint Ignatius tries to keep our minds, which are full of fantasy and full of deception, to keep it sober. And as you can see from what I'm reading in here, he emphasises the repentance and the humility and not to overdo things like ascetical things which are beyond us, etc. And that's an excellent uh, book. Uh, to me, every single sentence he's write, he writes is full of... It just fills your heart. And that's um, an excellent book, but again, it's going to be... has to be read by someone who's spiritually struggling. If you're not struggling... I would recommend you to just read newspapers and magazines and things like that. It's safer. Don't read books that are beyond, only when you're struggling. Now, the next book we said was St. John of Cronstadt. This is by, um, sorry for the people on the tape. The great, uh, the um, Pedocostar and the Triodion are published by the Holy Apostles Convent at Colorado, in Colorado, I think, yeah. Then the arena is published by St. Holy Trinity Monastery, Jordanville. That's they published that book. Now, the spiritual counsels of St. John of Cronstein, as I said, are very, very simple things. He had a gift of being able to explain the spiritual in everyday ways. Because when you read some ancient Holy Fathers, just too deep, you can't understand. But these things, he, you know, he wrote it in a very simple way. That's, this is published by St. Vladimir's Press. St. Vladimir's Seminary, Seminary Press. Um, that's excellent. Now, the next one, which I'll be quoting some things from, is another book which I bought when I was um, first in the faith. And still I remember things from it, even I haven't read it for a while, but I have looked up some things now for this talk. But I read it in the beginning, and it just it's very good. And it's Russian letters of spiritual direction by Starets St. Macarius of Optina. And he's writing letters and, you know, like he's just got all sober things in there. I remember years ago when I was younger and I read, you know, when someone asked him, um, here it is here, when someone asked him, if my husband tells me to do something and my, wife, and my mother tells me to do something which is opposite to what my husband said, who should I listen to? Because if I don't listen to my husband, then I'm going against him. If I don't listen to my mother, then I'm going against her. And he's in, it's, it's what's called discernment. And this is what these elders had. They had discernment. They know what to say. And he said, you do what your husband says because obedience to the husband is higher than obedience to the parents once you're married. And the other book, as I said, is also writ written, uh, published by St. Vladimir Seminary Press, 
which is Christ is in our midst, letters from a Russian monk, uh, Father John, and this one here we're reading from this book in this talk. So they're books that people can get, the ones overseas that listen to it, they can get them from over there. Uh, I spoke quite a lot today on this thing about seeing our sins and all and things like that. Now, I found another book, which is uh, published, I think, again, by St. Vladimir's Seminary Press. It's called Diary of a Russian Priest, Father Alexander. I think he died in the 40s, I'm not sure. I think he was worldly, and then he became a priest. So his um, perspective on things is quite, you know, good, because a lot of the fathers also were, were more um, ingrained in their faith, in one's... In, um, Anyway, he was, I think, a secular person, but but he wrote a very he wrote a very good book. And here, what does he say? He says people who are over concerned, over sensitive in avoiding to do wrong, who are suspicious of every movement in their soul, who torture themselves and their spiritual father by continual petty inquiry into their sins, eventually reach a state of complete confusion. So let's have a look at this. There are people who, due to some mental ailment, tend to become really oversensitive to their sins. They go, oh, was that a sin? That wasn't a sin. they kind of into that mental thing. And they torture themselves, but they also go to their spiritual fathers and say to them, and I did this, and then they go, and then they come back again five minutes later, I did it again, and all these type of things. It becomes all quite a confusing state. And he says they should be forbidden to analyse themselves and forbidden to test their conscience continuously. They must be, you see, and I agree, even after a few years of being a priest, I started to realise that uh, some can think that they're leading a spiritual life by being conscious of their sins, but really all they're creating themselves is madness. And I used to tell them, stop. Don't do that. Because we read spiritual books which talk about to look at your thoughts like the Holy Fathers teach. But that state is for one who has progressed somewhat in the spiritual life. When we do that prematurely, it can cause mental problems, especially those who already have mental issues. And he says, which is correct, he says, they must be given a simple nourishing diet, that of prayer and good deeds, just simple prayer, little bit of prayer, and the doing of good deeds. For it is through these things that simplicity of soul is acquired and the feeling for the truth is developed. Once this is achieved, self-examination can be resumed. Not everyone is at the point, especially if they've got some mental issues, that they can examine themselves continuously. See, all that advice that I gave before we're assuming that someone is going, you know, on the normal way there. But when someone has these issues, these mental issues, 
then they can make themselves worse. They don't, and I always say to people, don't do that. But he goes into some other advice later on. He talks about prayer and fasting and things like that and what it does for people that have got these problems. Now, using short prayers. Apart from reading prayers from the prayer book, which I mentioned last week, one can constantly repeat short prayers. This can be done in the prayer room or during the day. So apart from our prayers that we read and also during the day, we can say these little, little prayers. Again, if you've got these mental issues, sometimes people can become out of it, which I'll repeat in a minute. The repeating of short prayers helps one to concentrate. Lord, have mercy during the day, you can say. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the Jesus prayer. Most holy Theotokos, save me, a sinner. And St. Gregory Palamas's one that I said last time is his famous prayer, Lord, enlighten my darkness. Uh, by whatever means, and another one that someone else wrote, by whatever means, save me. There's all these little prayers that someone can say. And when you repeat the prayer, like one... Uh, if I can give a really crude example. Like the times tables where the child continually says three times four is 12, three times four is 12 and repeats it. And it helps to focus and to, um, to remember. That's a technique that we use as humans. But also to some extent, it's, it's, the same, it's a little bit similar to the prayers, the short prayers where we kind of say the same thing and focus and helps us to penetrate or to concentrate more. But this happens when we have progressed somewhat in the spiritual life. Now, what people do that just come out of the worldly life, all of a sudden they say, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, and they look like they're at a wall somewhere overseas and bashing their heads, and it becomes not a very pleasant sight. They become um, fixated and very unhealthy. You know, some people, they pray like that and do things like that. Uh, I won't mention where but you know, even orthodox do it too it just uh, becomes like a very agitated thing not healthy these prayers the holy father say should come because you feel it so for example if you begin to feel that you are darkened if you begin by through your prayer life through your spiritual life and you begin to say oh i'm so darkened then from your heart you say lord enlighten my darkness or if you feel that you aren't going to be saved because of your sins then from your heart when it comes you say lord jesus christ have mercy on me but when we just say it robotically then as elder porfirio says later on it can cause mental problems now there are some fathers that say do it even when you don't feel it but he's talking about people that have progressed somewhat in the spiritual life it is a means to achieve what is called unceasing prayer because we know that St. Paul says pray unceasingly and so therefore these little short prayers help one to concentrate and to be able to pray often. But today, the majority of people, they can't do that because it will cause, as I said before, mental and spiritual problems. For example, a person who claims that they can say the Jesus prayer often but at the same time is distracted with internets and television and mobiles and emails and facebooks and sms's and m&ms and whatever else they're doing there something's wrong can you imagine going to manathos and seeing the uh, uh, like a monk there who's doing the jesus prayer as he's walking and walking and he's accessing his blackberry and looking at his emails 
as he's doing his prayer robe, does that actually go? Would that make you vomit? Well, that's the same thing. For those living in the world, it is very difficult to maintain unceasing prayer due to work, rushing around, commitments. That's obvious. I mean, people can't even think about God. I remember when I used to teach at school and after a whole day of it, because I, I used to be quite intense, as you can notice today, um, but I used to teach quite in, like, very in, in an intense way. So by the time I finished, I was quite zonked. I was really, really out of it, tired. You, know, you take five, six classes in a row, 30 kids per, per class, and you're just going on and on and on and on. At the end of that, if someone says to me, would you like to pray? Would you like to come in the book room? Let's do some prayers. I would say, no, I don't feel like it. I can't. My mind's all over the place. I can't do it. Does that, what does that mean, that I'm, an, that I'm an unbeliever? No, it means I'm realistic. I can't do it. Because there's just so much distraction. I would have to go in the train and then I'd get my book and start to read and slowly, slowly, slowly either I penetrate and begin to get a bit softened or my book drops on the ground because I've fallen asleep, which is what used to happen. Morning was good. Morning I could read for about an hour solid. Afternoon, just too tired. See? Human. What I'm going to do? Go home and start beating my chest like... Godzilla and say, what have I done? I dropped the book in the train or something like that. Just doesn't, you know, people, that's what I mean by you overdo the madness. Um, King Kong, sorry, I think it was. Okay, now we said last time that the fathers of the church said remembering God is not just to pray during the day continually, but also it's when you are keeping the commandments of Christ, when you're concentrating and say, okay, what's the commandments? I've got to do that. Doing good deeds, when you give money to the poor, when you condemn yourself for your sins, when you have sorrow for your sins, when you're struggling with your passions, when you're patient during sickness or through afflictions, etc. Patience in the face of slander, when someone's slandering you go, why are they doing this to me? And you just say, God, help me to do this. All that is still remembrance of God ridicule when you go through, bringing up children, taking care of the children continually. Many forget about these things and seek instead some exalted prayer life. They come to the church and they think, oh, all these things are not spiritual. And then you see them there, they get prayer ropes, some of them get really big ones, and then they start to um, pray. They're all praying there and forgetting that make, like for example, for a woman, to make a nice meal for her family is prayer. Where they don't come home and have to eat, you know, like horrible food. Which is usually takeaway because sometimes they're so busy and making their career, so they've got to go and get Big Rooster or some other off meals like that. <laughs> that McDonald's stuff they say doesn't even decompose, so you can keep it for two, three years. <laughs> We hear about that all the time on the current affairs, etc. So we forget that all these things are also remembrance of God and is also a form of prayer. 
taking care of someone sick, going to visit someone. What, what are we here today? I was thirsty and you gave me no water. I was sorry, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and you did not visit me. I was in jail and you did not visit me, etc., etc., etc. Simple commandments. There's some spirit. There's some spiritual meaning to all that. But why don't we just take it for us? Simple as that. Just simple. Doing the commandments of God. So when we try and reach high levels of prayer with feelings. This is dangerous. We should keep things simple. So let's go on now to the next section, bows and prostrations. We spoke about this last time, and we said there are, we, we call bows when you bow halfway, and we also call bows when you fall to the ground, prostration. But just to make it easier, I'll just call bows those half ones, and prostrations the ones you go right down, even though technically they're both called bows. It is best to begin one's prayer rule, as I said last time, with bows, in particular with the reading and morning of evening prayers. When, as I said earlier on, when you're about to begin prayer, apart from those other preparations, an excellent preparation is when you do a few prostrations beforehand. It says here, in general, bows and prostrations tire and warm the body by heating the blood. As we said that last time, when people do physical exercise, it makes the blood you know, run through the body, makes it warm and helps to stimulate mental activity. This, that's why student, the people that are lazy, as I said last time, couch potato type of children that are always on the internet and playing their games, those um, games that they play all the time, those computer games, that mentally they can't really, a lot of times they can't study because they don't move. So bowels help our minds to concentrate. This helps the mind to concentrate. They are especially used together with short prayers. We said that before, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, that's that, or you can go right down and things like that. Apart from this, bows and prostrations help to create a contrite and humble heart, as does fasting. It humbles the body. Prostrations humble the body. Fasting humbles the body. Whatever humbles the body can help for us to draw the grace of God so that we can start to see our sins and we can start to repent. But they must be done, St. Theophan says, unhurriedly and with proper reverence and fear of God. There is no progress in prayer without the performance of bows and prostrations. That's why in the Orthodox Church, and the Russians keep it well, the Serbians they keep it well, there should be no chairs, no seats. Now, what makes our tradition different to the others is that the orthodox tradition has an emphasis on bows and prostrations now in the modern greek churches today if you try and do a bow and prostration you smash your head on the pew in front of you right (laughs) because they've got the pews right through but in the slavic churches which is good it's empty in the middle so that when it's now at lent for example there's large parts of the subject's prostrations, continual prostrations. During the liturgy, for example, the pre-sanctified liturgy, there's two points where the priest says, lifts up his hands, his hands and says, O Lord and Master of my life, a spirit of idleness, curiosity, etc., prostrations, etc. But this cannot be done when there's all these chairs. People can't do them properly. We're not here to judge those who do that, but I'm just trying to say to you that Orthodoxy is, there is an importance placed on bows and prostrations. And that's why 
it's good when the churches are, are, are built in that way. They're built. Mount Athos, when you go, you'll see the monasteries, they all have those chairs around the wall, like they're like that. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of them. Um, and they're called stalls. And each monk sits on his stall. But then in front, it's empty. So when the time comes, he gets off his stall, prostrations, up, down, whatever, whatever part is necessary. So there's, there's that space in the front. So that's the, that is important. So we're not here to judge those who have deceits, and I'm just, what I'm saying is that this proves the importance of bowels and prostrations. Those who are not sick, those who don't have physical problems and can do bowels and prostrations should do them. If you're sick, that replaces the bowels and prostrations. If you're sick and you can't fast, the sickness replaces the bowels, prostrations and fasting, etc. Actually, our elder Ephraim in America, he calls it uh, involuntary ascesis, which means that you're made to be, you're, you're kind of compelled to do an ascetical life, but not that it's with your will. See, when we do prostrations or bows, it's with our will. I say, I'm going to do 10 prostrations, or I'm going to fast. That sometimes can lead to pride a lot of times. And what does God do in his wisdom to protect us? He gives sicknesses. He allows sicknesses to happen so that the person who is sick, even though they can't do their bowels, etc., the fact that they're just being patient with their sickness and suffering takes the place. And that is safer a lot of times than the other one because you see today in the church how many people say, oh, I did the fast, I did this, I did that. When you're healthy, you still got to do it, but you've got to be very careful. But the ones who are sick, whether mentally, physically, and they can't a lot of times do these things, as we're going to read further on, then they are, God will, will not ask of them why didn't you fast? Why didn't you do prostrations? He will ask them, why weren't you patient in your sickness, in your mental problems or in your physical ailments? And people who endure mental and physical sicknesses actually a lot of times surpass those who are healthy and do prostrations and fasting because a lot of times secretly those people have... A, self-esteem they feel self-satisfied i'm doing the fast so we've got to be careful more on that in a minute a prayer rule should consist of prayers prostrations bows short prayers and prayers in your own words so our prayer rule we should aim for it to be a mixture of the of that it should be read prayers more on that so we'd read prayers from the morning prayers night prayers compline canons etc some prostrations some bows, some short prayers, if you have gone to that level where you can do them where it's coming from your heart. You know, most holy thought save most holy thought save me, short prayers. And prayers in our own words. Once, one's prayer rule should be a mixture of all these things. For example, it is beneficial to make one or more bows or prostrations after each prayer of the morning night prayers. For example, there might be ten morning prayers. So you might do five prostrations in the beginning. And then after each prayer, you might just do one or two prostrations. Then you read the next prayer, etc. So it's, you're doing them as you're going through. 
Also, one can repeat a short prayer or some say prayers in one's own words during the prayer room. St. Theophan recommends to pray in one's own words at the end of the prayer room. And why? Because usually at the end of the prayer room, one's warmed up, one's entered into a more of a spiritual state. So, Because prayers in your own words are harder. So that's why he says that. But some people can spread some in their own words as they're going, depending on how long they've been praying for, how many years, etc., etc. What they're going through. If you're going through problems, etc., then the prayers come from the heart. If your child is sick, and as you're praying, and every so often, and you pray, help my child. Or if you're suffering from a passion, or you're scared that you're going to fall into sin, then all these prayers in your own words, all these short prayers, all these things are true because they're coming from your heart. That's unlike when you just do it mechanically. If you can't pray in your own words, that's okay. Do something at the end. If you can't do it, don't do it at all. St. Theophan doesn't say that. I say that. If you can't, don't worry. Leave it. Sometimes it takes years for people to be able. I know people that have told me I went around and done a little bit of snooping and I actually asked some people and I said, can you pray for your own words? They go, no. Some people have been in the church for 10, 15 years. They go, they say, I still can't pray my own words. I can't do it. It's okay. Better to, just to say, I can't do it. Admit your fault, admit your weakness rather than being at the end and saying, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like the others and that I fast twice a week like the Pharisee, etc. By the way, in that Triodium book, it also says that the reason why on the first week of the Triodium on the publican and Pharisee, there's no fasting, the church abolishes all fasting on that week, so as for us to know that the fasting can be detrimental as it was for the Pharisee who fell into pride and that the fasting helps but he fasted and he was not justified while the other person, the publican, was justified because he said, Lord, have mercy. The prayer, the fasting, the purpose of the fasting is to help us come to repentance. If we're fasting and we're not coming to repentance, it's a waste of time and, de- and demonic because even the Hindus do fasting, Muslims do fasting, Jews do fasting, a lot of people do fasting. Even the um, New Age people do fasting. They drink carrot juice, they drink um, beetroot juice, that's why some of them look orange, some look purple. Um, they, they, they do, some of them, they have carrot juice continually, they actually begin to look like a carrot, they actually become orange in their skin. But they, they do fasting. What does that do? When one prays in this manner, there is less chance for the prayer to be tedious. In other words, boring, dry, monotonous routine. It's less chance of having wandering thoughts. It's less chance of being spiritually cold. Less chance of falling into laziness. Less chance of, of going into what's called haste and carelessness where you just do things quickly. It becomes much richer prayer that is mixed with prayers in your own words bows prostrations short prayers is a rich prayer rule problems encountered in prayer i've made a list of of a few problems about 18 of them number one 
Praying in your own words. I said this already. When you've finished reading your prayers, you should spend additional time saying prayers in your own words. So why does St. Theophan, I already answered it, advise us to offer to do this after the reading of the prayers? Many people, especially beginners, find praying in their own words difficult. By the end of the prayer, a person would have warmed up and would find praying in their own words easier. It should be noted that prayers in your own words may also come during the reading of your, written, of your read prayers, through your morning and night prayers, during an akathis, during a canon or a compline. This happens as one progresses in prayer. In general, if you still find praying in your own words difficult, humble yourself, don't force yourself, uh, keep on struggling, and after a time, it will come of itself, especially in times of great need, as I said before. I've already said it all. What I mean by great need? Great need is, as I said, someone's dying, someone's sick, you're going to lose your job, how are you going to feed your family? And then you pray, or you're praying for your passions because you're, uh, you're, um, some passion is bothering you, it's tormenting you, passion of anger, a sexual passion. It could be anything, and you're struggling not to do that. And then in prayer, you're coming from, from, from within your heart, you're praying to God to, uh, and asking him help. That's prayer of the heart. And that can be in your own words too. Just it might come out, just even one sentence might come out where you might say, help me not to sin. Just that. From the heart, in your own words, that is called heartful prayer. Number two, another problem in prayer is monotony in prayer. St. Ignatius writes, Do not refuse to endure the burden of certain amount of monotony and the need to force yourself when performing your prayer. Well, there will be times when the prayer will be, you know, here we go again, we've got to go through the whole thing again. That's monotonous, or doing the same thing all the time. Even though if you do what I told you before, it's less chance. And St. Ignatius says, Arm yourself in good time with the all-powerful weapon of prayer. Accustom yourself to the practice of prayer while you have the opportunity. He just says, keep on going. Keep on going. Some people say, oh, I don't feel like it. Oh, it's boring. I'll leave it for today. But that's, that's the trick. The saints advise, do it. Even if in the whole prayer rule you felt nothing, at the end... You say, God, be merciful on me. I can't believe completely there. Even one little prayer like that, St. John of Cronstein says that. It might just come just for one second. That's prayer of the heart. And when we see our failure, that we're seeing that we're not able to pray, we feel dead, and sometimes that does come all of a sudden. But that's if you keep on trying. One night, dead. Second night, dead. Third night, I'm going to try a bit more. Dead. Fourth night, dead. Fifth, by, the, by the fifth or sixth night, you might say, I can't, what's, what's, what's wrong with me? Am I that, um, am I an atheist or something? And you might just all of a sudden say, God, help me. That's the answer. Prayer of the heart, you see? Because it comes from your heart. So we keep on going. The deadness the, can actually help you and, and be humble. It's better than a person who prays and then comes out from the prayer and says, I feel the joy of the Lord in my heart and I feel this and I feel that and praise the Lord and all these type of things. And all of a sudden he takes out of his cupboard a tambourine and starts to uh, you know, play the tambourine down at Town Hall Station. There's something wrong there, obviously, isn't there? Even by just doing the prayer rule, reading prayers, canons, it will help us to pray. I call this um, the structure, you know, like a skeleton. So you've got the bones... 
Without the bones, there cannot be the body. You can't put muscles, etc. without bones. You just be a blob. So the prayer rule, to me, is like a skeleton. Even if there's no meat on it, there's no flesh, it's still a skeleton. And after a while, it be- the, the meat, meaning the prayer, begins to take substance and the body... The, the skeleton begins to form the muscle slowly, 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 so that it becomes a whole thing. But you've got to have a skeleton first. So that's, it doesn't matter. Even if you're doing your prayers, prostrations, um, all these things that I'm telling you in an in a external way, as long as you know that you're dead, then slowly, slowly, with repentance, with humility, it will start to take shape. We need that structure there. And you know what happens? Sometimes people have said, I've noticed that people who couldn't pray... Even for years, sometimes they just prayed and prayed, and they did all their they did their prayers, but they just couldn't get into it properly. But they had the structure. They used to come in, light the lambada, whatever you call it there. The, um, they put the icons up, burn the incense, read a bit of the prologue. Then they did some prostrations and everything. There was a structure there. And suddenly, some crisis happens in their life. They take the structure, they take the skeleton and they can use that to help them to come to true prayer because they've got something there. A lot of times when people haven't got anything because they've never practiced, they've never done anything, they can't pray, even in times of need. And that's why people, I find that people say to me, um, I've got a big problem. I said, what? I said, oh, I'm, I don't know, I'm... I'm fighting with my wife or something. We might even separate or something like that. And I say, okay, do you pray about it? And they look at me in, with that monkey look. They don't know. They don't because they, there's no structure there. When the structure's there, it's good. You already you say, oh, I'm a canon, the canon of the mother of God. I know it externally, but now as you're starting to pray for your needs, the canon becomes, you start to feel it. But you already got it there. That's the skeleton type of it. That's my own. Okay. Beware of too many prayers and prostrations. Now, and that's number three. One does not have to do too many prayers, bows or prostrations. It is better to perform a small number of these properly than to hurry through a large number of them. Out of enthusiasm and zeal to pray, many set themselves too many prayers. In order to finish so many prayers, one will uh, be tempted to read them quickly and without attention. So we just set ourselves too many things and we start to say... Oh, this is going to take me all day. And they start going quick. That's not good. So just better to have a few and do it with feeling than to have a real light where you're just doing them really, really, really quick. Where, however, uh, when rushing through prayers, one cannot penetrate the meaning of the prayers. One cannot pray with their heart. You cannot pray if you're saying, you know, if you're saying, a Lord and Master, my life, blah, blah, blah. you can't do that. That's, it's, number one, it's... it's impious as we say it's blasphemous it's not right you can't do that so what's the point in it common sense would say that it would be better to shorten the prayer rule at times than to complete it in agitation and to be a slave to the rule like i've got to finish i've got to finish i've got to finish it this is in this is in situations when there's limited time so for example i've got a for example once prayer rule is to read 10 prayers However, for whatever reason, he's only got five minutes to pray. Whatever reason it could be. He usually does it in 15 minutes, but they've only got five minutes. 
What do people do? In five minutes, they try and read the ten prayers. Now, what the saints say is, don't worry. Okay, it happened, it happens five minutes. It'd be best to read a few of these prayers properly in the five minutes rather than read them more hurriedly. Another situation is is when, in general, the set prayer rule is too difficult to complete. For example, a person has set himself to read 20 prayers and 100 prostrations, which he finds difficult and rarely completes without rushing or does not complete at all. That's his prayer rule. 20 prayers and 100 prostrations, saying. But he never, never hardly does it. In this case, the entire prayer rule needs to be reduced. Perhaps only read 15 prayers or 10 prayers and just do, you know, 40 prostrations or 20 prostrations. So that's when the entire prayer rule is too difficult to complete. And the other one was we've got a set prayer rule. We usually do it, but sometimes we run out of time, then shorten it for that time. Elder Porfirio says there is no point in making 100 prostrations if they leave you unmoved. Make only 20 or 15, but with fervour and love for God. Make sure you feel them. Better to do few with feeling than to do a lot where you're just doing it quickly. Now, last time we talked about wandering thoughts. We read spiritual books. When we read spiritual books or pray, we find that our thoughts wander. But this sometimes happens and we can't help it. This happens to everyone and is not a sin. But as I said last time, it does cause irritation, frustration in those who are trying to concentrate. It is only a sin when one notices the thoughts wandering and does nothing about it or even worse, one freely wanders along with them. Only sh- then one should repent when this happens. Happens to me. I'm sure it happens to all the pe- people. You're just standing there and all of a sudden you realise that you've been in Lululand somewhere. Somewhere you've travelled or you're, you're thinking about something and you're just standing there in front of the icons with the, with the prayer book in your hand but you don't... You don't, even know where you, you know, you don't even know where you've been in those last five minutes, ten minutes sometimes it can happen. When we see our thoughts wandering off, we must make great efforts to bring our mind back to the point that we lost concentration. It's important to remember that what St John of the Ladder says. We must lock our mind into the words of prayer by force. We've got to force ourselves to bring our mind and concentrate. And it's an exercise. You see, let me tell you some educational psychology. As a teacher, I realised that some children, uh, students, they can't concentrate. Uh, Could be TV, could be a lot of reasons. They just can't focus. Early on, when you're teaching kids from very young, sometimes it just could be that they can't, they're not, their eyes haven't been trained to even concentrate in the area that you want them. So you've got a book there, you might have some questions there, and you're trying to tell them to look there, but their eyes are going everywhere. So what I used to do is I used to cover up everything on the page and just there, so you're telling them, focus on that only. And that we might do that for a day or so, and then slowly, slowly you uncover a little bit more of the book, and then they uncover a bit more, because they really can't focus. And also, in general, a lot of problems where people can't concentrate. So in, the, in maths, what I used to teach, I used to actually give exercises where 
the person just does a lot of one type of question. So if it's algebra, for example, you give them 2a plus 3a and 4b plus 6b on 7x minus 2x and just keep on that and you're making them do that but I, I want them, I say do it, just do every single one and focus and after a while they begin to learn how to focus. Once they focus on those little things and you go a bit harder and harder, it's the same as in prayer, it's mental. Our minds scatter. That's it. That's, that's the way it is. So we have to learn to focus. And it sometimes takes years for us to be able to focus on what we are reading, what we're praying about. And that's okay. Father Alexander, in the diary of a Russian priest, now we go on to this part, since we're talking about watching your thoughts and all those prayers and things like that, he says... In our pastoral practice, little attention has been given to how a priest should guide mentally unstable people whose psychological state is abnormal. So I looked up the definition of that. So obviously he's using words that were in, back in those days. But basically it's a psychological disorder whose symptoms include uncontrollable emotions, attention-seeking behaviour, panic attacks, loss of reason, outbursts of agitation and sometimes even madness, and he said that we, the priests are not told how to take care of those people, how to guide those people. According to my observations, he says, the tension of prayer and the effort of fasting, in other words, when you make those type of people pray or fast, it causes tension in them. It's a strain. And this often only contributes to increase their inner chaos their confusion becomes worse. Their mental illness becomes worse when you put strain on someone who has a history of some type of mental illness, especially in those things. Here, personal methods are required, meaning each person should be given... You know, you can't say a general rule for everyone. Each person is an individual and you should give advice for each person. And he says here that sometimes the opposite of those applied to normal people. You might say to a normal person, you might say, um, if we can use that word, but let's just say to a person who doesn't suffer from those things to that extent, you might say to them, okay, you do the canon to the mother of God or you do some extra fasting or whatever. He says to those people, you don't do that. Sometimes you do the opposite. I've given so many examples from here on, in my talks on my experience of people who have had problems, who fasted a lot and started to do some prayers beyond their, beyond, they just couldn't do it, and it caused them to have major crisis. I just, it happens all the time. People might ring me up or I speak to people. Just, it's, it's a continual thing. Some people say, oh, he must have, he's, he must be clairvoyant. He must have special powers. Why? Because they ring me up and they say, um, you know, I'm very sick, I'm mentally unwell, I went to the hospital, sometimes they go to hospital, mental, to a mental hospital because they're very sick, or whatever. And then you say to them, okay, simple as that, you say, okay, when, um, when did this happen? They said in um, May. May, okay. May is just around the end of Lent. So I say to myself, so during Lent, what did you do? How, how did you fast? I fasted no meat and this and that. Some of them even do no oils. And they did this, this and that, and they were doing all these prayers. 
or some of them don't even do much prayers, just fasting. And I said, okay, so when did, when did you have your mental crisis? They said, during Lent. And then I said, that's because what you did, it, you can't do that. It's, it's, it's too strong. It's too much for you. And then they go, oh, he must have clairvoyance. Not clairvoyance, it's just called common sense. Because it happens all the time. It's just person after person after person. Remember what I said about the GP near my area? There's a lot of Greeks. Back in the old days, uh, where, I used, where I lived was a lot of Greeks. And I went to a doctor once and he said to me, um, he goes, my best business is after Orthodox um, Easter. I go, why? He goes, because they all fast, their stomachs shrink, and all of a sudden when it's um, Easter, they eat, you know, 10 eggs and meat and this and that, and all of a sudden their stomachs get sick and they come and run to men. That's when I get my, most of my business. So, you know, these things are silly. That's physical. But the mental strain is very dangerous. Very dangerous. I've had people, I've, I've spoken to people that became completely psychotic after excessive fasting. Psychotic. Psychotic means that they've lost the reality. They've lost reality. Which, there's some example, one example coming up. Laziness. St. John says, St. John of Cranston says, those who pray little are weak in heart. And thus, when they wish to pray, when, the, when they need to pray, their hearts become weak and so do their hands, their bodies, their minds, and it's difficult for them to pray. You, that's what happens. When a person doesn't really pray much, uh, they become uh, weak, they want to sit down, they want to, they start yawning, they start getting restless, they just can't do much, um, apart if they're not well mentally, that, that's another thing. But... Oh, by the way, the example of the mentally ill per people, those people will be saved from enduring that illness. And we will be surprised on the last day of what they will be given. Because mental illness is excruciating. It's very difficult. I remember once one person rang me and said, I want a life. I want to be able to be normal, to go out, to do what other people do, etc. And I said to this person, um, yes, but... Uh, you're going through a martyrdom. I mean, do you read Lives of Saints? They go, yes. And do you look up to the martyrs and all that? Goes, and this person said, yes. I said, well, that's what you're going through. It's a martyrdom. And your reward will be great in the next life because you are not receiving any of the pleasures of this life. You're not really experiencing some of them that can't get married, that can't have children, etc. They're not receiving what, what other people might receive. So it's an involuntary ascesis. They're like people that are living in the desert who are cut off completely from everything. These people are in the world, but they can't indulge in what everyone else indulges in. And that's why their reward is great. So, you know, maybe we can say, oh, I feel sorry for them. Maybe we should feel sorry for ourselves. So we go back to here. The la this laziness, this weakness, when a person doesn't pray, it's true that they can't do much prayer. As soon as they have to pray for some reason, they become like weak and they get tired and all these things. St. John of Cronstadt and other writes, people say if you don't feel inclined to pray, whatever reason, it's better not to pray. But this is tricky and false carnal logic. It's, it's not spiritual logic. If you pray only when you are inclined to do, you will cease praying altogether. Say, for example, I don't feel like it today. If you keep on doing that, at the end, you will stop praying, and that's what's happened to a lot of people. They stop praying because they just I don't feel like it. 
spiritual coldness. A loss of spiritual warmth and zeal for prayer is called spiritual coldness. This can come from physical reasons, that we said before, weakness, sickness of body, sickness of mind. In each of these, there is no sin and it will pass. So we all go through it. The saints went through it. Sometimes, as I said, like Saint Sarah from Masarov, for three and a half years. Saint Anthony went through it for years where they just feel completely nothing. God usually does not give someone those type of trials. But imagine these saints who experience the grace of God suddenly having taken it all away from them and they don't feel anything. Some of them even went through horrible temptations of unbelief where God permitted the devil to tempt them to say God does not exist. And they were tormented with that. And through that, they learned more humility. The remedy for this is to continue to perform your prayer rule, even if it's completely without feeling, which I've already said. For those with faith and endure patiently, cold feelings pass and the usual warm and heartfelt zeal, in other words, enthusiasm, will return. Sometimes quickly, sometimes a bit slower. However, spiritual cooling is bad, is disastrous, when it comes because we've sinned. In this case, we need to repent of our sins, and once we've repented and confessed if, if the sin warrants it, then our spiritual prayer can come back. Now we come to another one, which is a really difficult one. Despair and loss of hope in God's mercy. A very serious problem in the spiritual life is when one has sinned and is ashamed, hopeless, fallen to despair, embarrassed, thinking that God won't forgive them, or just embarrassed. And what they do is at this time, they don't want to go even to pray. They don't want to go to the icons. They're ashamed to look at the icons. Then they have these mad thoughts where they say, oh, the icon, the mother of God's looking at me in this way, and all these things that occur, which a lot of times is demonic whereby the demons do not want us to go to prayer after we have sinned. And the reason being is because once we hit those icons, once we go to the icons, once we get on our knees, once we start some prostrations, once we start reading some prayers, a lot of time our hearts are softened and suddenly we feel repentance for what we've done. Actually, we feel it more at that time than what we do when we aren't conscious of our sins. And that's why the demons don't want us to do that. They hate when Christians repent. Not approaching prayer is a trick of the demons which can lead to stop and pray altogether. How many people have stopped praying because of this trick? They fell into something serious sometimes and they go, I can't pray. And then they, after weeks and weeks of doing that, they've lost themselves. Sometimes it's very hard for them to come back. We need to be experienced in seeking God's mercy and forgiveness no matter what sin we have committed, like I said earlier on. Usually those who approach prayer in this state receive God's grace and experience heartfelt repentance, and sometimes very quickly. Someone once told me, they go, I fell into a sin, a serious sin, and I said, and what happened? They go, I had this thing, I didn't want to go and pray. I said, then what? Uh, I, went to the, I went to the icons and I started to do prayers. And within minutes, I felt from my heart this pain of heart and repentance and tears and asking God for forgiveness of what I've done. See, but that, that person forced himself. If he didn't and he stopped, he might have fell away and fallen away completely. Number eight, spiritual paralysis. Now, this leads on from this. This is when a person cannot pray, cannot read, 
basically can't do anything spiritual, can't struggle with the passions. Doing anything of these things is excruciating and extremely difficult. This is a horrible state, spiritual paralysis. The word for this in the spiritual writings is despondency in Greek, akedia. The spirit, now, this is the definition which I found in one of the books. The spiritual paralysis of the powers of the soul, when the, when the soul becomes paralysed. A state in which there is absolute indifference to prayer. Indifference meaning the person has no inclination for prayer at all, dead. Uh, and fasting. They're not inclined to fast unless they're fasting pharisaically. And in general, inertia about keeping the commandments of the gospel. I don't like using those words. Inertia is where you just can't move. You just cannot move in the spiritual life at all. Since man is made up of soul and body, spiritual despondency is reflected in the body too. So when a person becomes um, spiritually paralysed in the soul, this also starts to flow off into the, the body and the person becomes also paralysed to some extent in the body where they just feel lazy and can't do even anything, can't take care of their children, can't work, you know. It's a psychosomatic weakness and slackness. So psychosomatic means psycho, which means psyche, soul in Greek. Somatic, soma in Greek, which means body. So it's a body and soul weakness together. And, and it's a psychosomatic paralysis. Both the soul and the body become paralyzed. Horrible. This could come about, there's a number of reasons. One, usually is the person trusted themselves. They became proud, vainglorious about their prayers. Didn't work on repentance, like I said earlier. Repentance wasn't part of their prayer rule. Fell into deception. They were overconfident. They did too many prayers, for example, and became um, proud about it. Or they were ignorant in how to pray because they didn't study, didn't ask anyone. Like it says there, St. Nectarius asked. You go and ask a priest, especially monastics, how do you pray? You read books, obviously, but most of all is you should also get guidance. They did not persevere during times of spiritual coldness, like I said earlier. They didn't persevere in times of spiritual, when it's monotonous, boring, when they felt lazy, when they didn't feel inclined. They just didn't, that could be a lot of reasons why a person becomes spiritually paralyzed. Number nine, overconfidence and pride in prayer. It's, a, it's spiritually disastrous to be overconfident in prayer. What does that mean? This means to believe that all your prayers are answered. This is different to having humble faith that your prayer will be answered. However, true humble prayer is when we seal our prayer with thy will be done. So, there are people who in the spiritual life begin to believe that all their prayers are answered. And they say, oh, I will pray for you. God, will, that's all right. You'll get better. This will happen. That will happen. Just an overconfidence in prayer. Father Dimitris Gagastatis in another book, he actually says, um, oh, coming up, here it is. We must not pray with too much boldness toward God and the most holy Theotokos. We are still sinners and God does not hear a sinner's voice. In other words, be humble and say, who is God to listen to me because I'm so sinful? And then when, obviously, we, we pray, what does God want us to pray about for our salvation? and the salvation of others. That's the most important. God listens to that. But some other things, like your child's sick, and you're praying to God 
for the child to get better, forgetting that is it, use, is it beneficial for the child to get better. But we have this bond that, no, oh, no, I have trust that God will make the child better. See, this is overconfident. We pray with faith, saying, Lord, I'm sinful, I'm not worthy to look up, to even speak to you, however, this, 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 thy will be done. See? St. John of the Latter says, no doubt there are certain, ah, this is a wonderful example. No doubt there are certain prayers of some vainglorious people that deserve to be heard by God. But the Lord has a habit of anticipating the prayers and petitions that their conceit should not be increased because their prayers have been answered. Let me explain this to you because it's such a wonderful teaching. In other words, before a person has prayed about something, say, for example, a person's lost their job, but they haven't prayed yet for them to find another job to feed their family, but they've lost their job. God grants that person a job, either for the prayers of someone else or just he just grants that person a job before that person has asked for a job. Why? Because if that person prayed for a job and got it, what may happen? Which they fall into pride. So what God does is he grants the person what they need before they ask for it. For example, a person is about to lose their job, but he needs another job to feed his family. Another job is offered before the person has had a chance to pray to God. Perhaps someone else prayed for them to get a new job. The main thing is that if the person himself prayed for the new job and he later got it, he would fall into vainglory. Did you know that? I never knew it, actually. So, so, and I've got a beautiful example. Sorry, I've written here a frightful example. About 15 years ago, the following happened. A young man had a medical problem. This happened, I know, this is what I was, I was involved in this. A young man had a medical problem that the doctors could not solve for a long period of time. I don't know what it was, but it was some problem. His family asked for prayers from a parish priest who came and read prayers over this young man, and after which the operation was not necessary because they said, well, um, I think he had an obstructive bowel, I'm not sure what he had, but he said, um, the doctor said we have to operate, but then after the priest, that wasn't, me, parish priest, after the priest did this prayer, then he um, got better and didn't need the operation. After this incident, the young man continued to lead a sinful life and never, never went to church or had any interest in God. After a number of years of leading that life, he had really, really bad pain from kidney stones, something like that. So on the way in the ambulance, he was taken to hospital. Uh, he knew that they're going to open him up. And um, might have been gallstones, I think. I think that one's pretty bad, if I remember. On, this way, on his way to hospital, he prayed in his pain. And it turned out that no operation was necessary. So it's the second time. From this, he became proud, and he changed and began to pray continually because somewhere he heard, pray without ceasing, so he started to stand all night, not eating, not drinking, even worse, he still didn't even go to church. So he began this, this deception because he said, oh, God helped me the first time, now God helped me a few years later in this one. Then he changed and he said that basically he felt that he was special. At this point, the relatives telephoned our monastery as well, asking for help. 
we commemorated him for a number of liturgies, as a result of which um, at least he stopped praying and started to eat a little because this, this person was really heading for bad. And he um, went to the hospital for his feet that were damaged from the standing and also from dehydration. He was very, very sick. I then spoke to him on his return from the hospital. Actually, he rang me and I spoke to him a little bit. This is years ago. And um, I warned him and said to him, no, see the advice? Because he had mental issues. And I said to him, don't pray at all. Don't pray at all. And stop reading, I think he was reading the Psalter. Just kept on reading the Psalter like, a, like an obsessed person. I said, leave, the, leave that alone. Once you start that again, you'll go back into the same thing. Don't do it. Of course, I knew after speaking to him that he can see he was itching to do it again. So a few days later, lo and behold, he started again. His relatives asked for prayers from various priests and monasteries, but nothing. He wouldn't stop. He even became physical with some relatives that tried to say to him, you know, eat or drink, and he actually um, hit them. Um, they had to tie, as uh, yeah, so let's say he, um, so I spoke to the relatives myself and I said to them, the solution is simple. You ring the, the uh, mental health crisis team from the hospital, they'll come with the police and they'll handcuff him and take him to the mental institution. And then they'll have to force feed him. Now, some of you might say, how can a priest do that? How can the priest actually advise his relatives to uh, ring up the, the mental crisis team and take him away, which they did, handcuffed, to the hospital? Because we live in a world where we live with a world of doctors, and sometimes we have to use, we can't do everything as we say, people think, oh, just do prayers. No, sometimes God wants us to go the normal way, the way of doctors, the way of medications or whatever. So that was my advice, which they did. They took him there and they asked him to, to eat. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't drink. He just kept on going in, his, in that way. So they tied him down and force-fed him intravenously, you know, through them. And I explained to his relatives that this time prayers weren't going to help in an obvious way. I said, yes, he was helped in the past. This time the prayers aren't going to help in the same way where you're going to see a miracle where, bang, he's going to stop, come home and be normal. Even though I've had experience with that happened many times to different people. Why? And I said to the relatives, because this will deepen his deception. This will deepen his madness, because this will say again, see, God helped me. I became better because God personally helped me. And I said to them, you can do whatever. You can send names to every monastery in the world. He's not going to get better that way. He's going to get better differently. He's going to get better through the normal way. That will be more humbling. What's the normal way? Or sometimes it's shock therapy for some people, heavy medication, being, being locked up for weeks like he was. I also said to the parents, no priests. 
don't bring any priest to the hospital because it will make his madness more. Not even any priest. See, sometimes we have to do the opposite. What do we do? We can pray behind his back without him knowing. Because that way he doesn't get proud. This person had what's called religious mania. It's a mental problem. And I said, no priests. That was my advice. I said to them, you can do whatever you want. But once the priest goes there, then he will think that he, any improvement he gets, he'll think it was from the priest. And then he'll go in madness again instead of from the normal way. So they put him on medication. And after a few weeks, they um, let him out. And um, he got very sick and all that. And then he became quite better, but on the medication and being force-fed, having to speak to him. He was obviously, it's, it's humiliating to some degree for people when they first go to these places. You know, it's very difficult. But what happened? There was nothing spectacular, no miracle as he thought. Obviously, the prayers helped even for him to to respond to the medication. I was quite surprised that he got well so quick, obviously from the prayers behind the scenes. But in general, he doesn't know that. To him, he went to the mental hospital. He was given intravenous uh, thing. He was put on heavy medication, etc., etc. See, this is what we say, what St. John letters. Sometimes it's better for a person not to know God's help or to go the normal way because it's more humble pressuring God. Here we are not speaking about those who are overconfident in prayer, but here we're speaking about those who demand from God answers to their prayers, to a specific prayer. And Elder Porfirio says, we should not insist in prayer. Such persistence does, does harm instead of good, where we say to God, I want this, I want this, I want. Remember the example I said last time about, or maybe the time before, of the people didn't, that couldn't have children, things like that, and at the end the father forgotten how to kill the son. It was all these things there, but it was, you have to listen to the other tapes, I'm going to go through it again, but a demanding from God for our prayers to be answered is is not good in that sense. Now, some of you might say, but in the um, Bible, it was the persistent widow, I think it was the persistent widow that was asking Christ continually for help and Christ praised her persistence. And the answer to that is that we can be persistent, we can, be, we can ask over a period of time, but if we do not say, if this is your will, we are heading for a catastrophe. Someone wants to marry, a woman wants to marry a certain man. So she prays and prays to God and says, I want this man, I want this man, I want, to, I want this to marry this man. But never says, is it your will? Is it this for me? So at the end, she might get what she wants. And instead of marrying a person, she marries a beast. Or someone that does bad things to the children in, 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 in many different ways, which I'll let you understand. In, other, in our prayer, we should ask for the salvation of our soul. That prayer is good. That one you can be persistent. The Father say, you never say, if it's your will for me to be saved. That's blasphemy. Because God wants everyone to be saved. See? And didn't Christ say, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. If someone's seeking salvation, all the rest, the children, their private life, all that will be granted. That's why 
the, the fathers say when someone prays for their salvation, when someone's concentrating, repenting of their sins, etc., all these other things fall into place much easier. But first, seek the kingdom of heaven. That's what Christ says. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Easily and without the slightest difficulty, Christ can give us what we want. And remember the secret. The secret is not to think about asking for the, spe- for the specific thing at all. Uh, this is um, Elder Porfirio saying, sorry. It's, easy, it's enough to say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. God has no need to be informed by us about our various needs. We should ask for the will of God to be done. Now, of course, this seems contradictory because we know that in our prayer books, we're praying for children, we're praying for our... For, um, for God to give us our food and all these type of things. So what does all the porphyrios mean? When someone progresses, 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 which we're not at that level, they do get to the point where for them it's just Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. They don't have any uh, worry about the other things. But we're not at that stage. However, what, Saint, what Elder Porfirio is saying is that we should ask for the will of God to be done. Do we want our child to go to university, for example? And we're praying. There's nothing wrong with that. But thy will be done. What's the point if he goes to university and gets mixed up in the wrong things there and loses himself, etc.? You know, we demand thinking that we are like the person in the gospel and that's what God wants. We're allowed to be persistent and have faith, but unless our prayer at the end it says thy will be done... That will come to catastrophe. Time distortion. Time distortion is when we're praying, a few minutes feels like a much longer period of time. It's kind of we get confused with the time. Too many, this situation is unbearable to the point of excruciating where they're standing there and they're going, okay, my prayer is going to take 15 minutes, and to them, this 15 minutes is like they're in hell. We get sometimes that at that stage, especially for beginners. And we might only be have prayed for a couple of minutes and we think, oh, this is just going on and on and on and on. To many, yes. So, for example, if the prayer rule is to read 10 prayers and they are at the beginning of the prayers, reading the rest of them can feel like a great burden. When we have all experienced that. So you read in your prayers, you've done prayer one, and you go, oh, another eight to go or another seven to go. This does happen and it feels like the first prayer took hours. The same can apply to prostrations, using the prayer rope, reading the Holy Bible and reading Orthodox literature. Sometimes it just feels like a burden and very difficult and we feel just going on. Another type of time distortion happens when we pray without a prayer book or randomly perform prostrations and say short prayers. This is dangerous. In this case, we can be left with the delusion that our prayer rule was completed properly. So a person doesn't have a set rule of certain prostrations, certain red prayers, etc. What they do is they just pray in whatever way. They do a couple things in their mind. They do a few prostrations. They do some prayer. It's like a madness there. And that person at the end doesn't even know how long they've been doing it for. And they believe that they, they might think that they've been praying for half an hour but only pray for two minutes. This great temptation can lead one to stop in their prayer rule altogether. That's why we need specific prayer rules. The number 12, haste and carelessness in prayer. And he says here, I think that you carelessly rush to complete your prayer rule just to get by. 
Make it a rule from now on never to pray carelessly. Nothing is more offensive to God than this. It is better to leave one part of the prayer rule, which we said before, and to complete the remainder reverently with fear of God than to do the whole prayer rule and do it carelessly. It is even better to read but one prayer or fall on your knees and pray in your own words than to pray carelessly. If you pray carelessly, there will be no fruit. Now, Christ is in our midst, that book, letter 14. He says, never mind if you do not always manage to complete your prayer rule. Don't become a slave. Do not be a slave to the rule. Keep the rule of the publican, which is two Sundays ago. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and remember God, and remember God, that this takes the place of every rule because the purpose of the rule is to say, is to, is to repent and ask God mercy. Well, some people, they can't finish it in time, something happens, and from their heart they say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and that's basically the aim of the, the rule anyway. Strictly condemn yourself for such carelessness, says St. Theophan. Let this be clear to you. No one who prays fervently and with attention ends prayer without feeling the effect of prayer. So if someone prays fervently and with attention, they will get something out of it, unless we've gone through those cold periods and things like that. But in general, they do receive help. Oh, of what a blessing we deprive ourselves by allowing negligence in prayer, says St. Theophan. Negligence is in prayer is like cancer. See? People go and do cancer checks. Men check cancer prostate, women for their breasts, etc. There's all different types of cancer. And you go and check regularly, which is good. But there's also a cancer in the spiritual life, and that's called negligence. When we do our spiritual work in a really slack way. Therefore, speeding up prayers, whatever prayer, prayer rope, prostrations, uh, short prayers, the prayer book, is dangerous. Why does haste in prayer occur? asks St. Theophan. It is incomprehensible. We spend hours involved in other things and they seem like minutes when we're having fun, obviously. But just begin to pray and it seems we have stood for a long time. And when we feel we must hurry to finish as soon as possible, there's this like um, a bug in us that as soon as we begin prayer, it's like, I want to finish, I want to finish quickly. Finish to do what? Watch TV, go to bed, go talk to someone on the phone, relax, Whatever. We always have this thing that we want to do it quick, 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 get it over and done with. No benefit is reaped by praying in this way. So what should we do? And this is the last section, which tells us how we can avoid a lot of these problems. Not only to avoid haste in prayer, which is dangerous, but also to avoid laziness, excessive zeal, time distortion, self-deception. Some do the following. This is what St. Theophan saying. After you determine a set number of prayers, whether that means red prayers, short prayers, prayers in your own words, bows, prayers, whatever, set a time limit. Therefore, it would be best to set a definite length of time for your prayer rule. Just don't say, I'm going to read the morning prayers. Someone can read the morning prayers and take five minutes without realising they've done it really quick or their mind's lost and they've even skipped pages, etc. That's not a good way to do it. It's dangerous. He says, which is the way that I believe as well, is that we should have a time limit. A quarter of an hour, half an hour, or a whole hour. Whatever's convenient for the person. And regulate your prayer rules so that the clock struck on the half hour or the hour signals the end of prayer. Uh, he, that's what he says. Some people do that. Some people say, I'm going to start on the 12 on the 6th. 
whatever, and they say, and then, and then it goes quarter past or half past or a whole hour, whatever. But some other people do the following. They say, okay, what time am I starting? 10 past. What time am I going to finish? 10 past. If they do an hour, or they start 10 past. If their prayer rule is 50 minutes, they know they're going to finish at 25 past. That's it. So you just got to memorise what time did I start? And it's half an hour, 10 past, half an hour become 22. If it's an hour prayer that you do, etc. Then, when you begin prayers, do not concern yourself with the number of prayers read. Don't be concerned with volume, says St. Theophan. You may not finish all the prayers, but this does not matter as long as one performs their prayer will with concentration, warmth of heart, contrition and reverence in the specific time. So, for example, if someone's reading the morning prayers and they're reading prayer number three and they read it and they couldn't concentrate, so they read it again and again and again. They might read it four or five times really trying to focus on that prayer, then that means that they're wasting time. Not that it's a waste, but what one can say. So they're not going to have time to finish everything. But that doesn't matter because that's valuable. The fact that you're repeating and trying and repeating and trying to feel what you're reading is more valuable than reading it all. However, if you find you have rushed the prayers, so say, for example, you've got your half an hour prayer rule and you've finished in 20 minutes, you just went quick because you rushed without realising it. He says, then you must do the remaining 10 minutes. Fill it up with um, prayers in your own words or prostrations or another canon or something like that. Just finish the prayer. Finish your set time. Others determine how many prayers they can do on the prayer rope, which is for people that are a bit more progressed. They actually say, okay, I'm going to do three prayer ropes in an unhurried way, counting the knots. They stand with their minds before the Lord or converse with him in their own words or recite some prayer. And this is how they reverently venerate his unending glory. Such people so accustom themselves to praying that the minutes at prayer are filled with sweetness. Now be careful of that word, sweetness. And that is true that some people might at times feel some spiritual, some sweetness in the prayer. But if the prayer is not based on repentance, then this sweetness might be demonic sweetness. And that's what the next talk's about. And it is rare that they remain just for a point of time. They even double and even triple it. Some people say, okay, I've got my set prayer. They do their half an hour, but then they feel that they want to do a bit more. So they just do a bit more if they've got time, etc. Choose one of these methods for yourself and hold to it earnestly. In other words, but I, I advise that the best one is the time. The best one is the time. But some people might say, okay, my prayer rule will be, you know, some people that are under spiritual guidance might say, I'm going to do 300 knots and 20 prostrations, etc. St. Hilarion of Optinus states that God does not demand undistracted prayer from beginners. And people come and say, oh, I can't concentrate, I can't concentrate, I feel like giving up. But God does not demand that from us. It is acquired with much time and labour. As the Holy Fathers say, God grants pray, prayer to those who pray. As long as you're praying, that after a while, yes, you will begin to pray better. But you have to do it. Instantaneous prayer life is impossible. You must make a strong effort to control your thoughts, at least to some degree. Prayer does not come about as you expect, but just wishing for it. And suddenly, there it is. This does not happen. 
So St Theophan says it might take months, it might take even years to actually start to pray somewhat you know, in, in the right way. And I think that was um, it, because I had the next section which was on illusions and mental images and the evil spirits and all these type of things. And I think tears and joy because, you know, as St. Porfirio says, that not all tears are from God. Uh, they often can be a sign of womanly weakness. And I'm sorry for the feminists for that, but that's the um, thing. Women can turn on. I, I know I taught in girls' schools. I taught in boys' schools. And um, the girls could turn on the tears. Dr. Tap, you see, turn on and off. I don't know how they do it. But they can do it. They can have tears coming out. Those women, I mean, I mean, those movie stars, they do it all the time. Unless they rub onions in their eyes. I don't know how they do it, but they actually can do that. So that's what we're going to talk about in the next talk, is a lot about the Pentecostal things and deception in prayer. Deception in prayer. Very, very important when we see things, the icons doing things and strange things and all those type of things. A lot of that we've done in talk 32 and 33, but St. Ignatius says there's two types of deception. The one, the really bad one, is when you see illusions and things moving and hear things and um, visions, etc. That's really bad. But the second, he calls it, the second type of deception is feelings. When we are deceived in our feelings, where we actually feel that the joy is from God when it's not, that the tears are from God when they're not. We go through St. John of the Ladder, we'll explain there's so many reasons why people have tears. Like today, I've got tears because I've got some type of allergic reaction. But it doesn't, um, that's why I took one of those um, antihistamines because my eyes and my nose was running. And I was worried, how am I going to do the talk? I don't usually take those things, but today I took it. Does that mean it's tears of repentance? No. So if that was the case, we can say people are repenting a lot in spring, but they're not. It's just because the pollens are more concentrated at that time, and that's why they have tears. But people even can think that the pollens um, irritating their eyes is a form of tears of repentance. We have to know when it's real and when it's not real. Questions before we um, end, yes? Um, should um, female ladies when praying wear a We said last time in the last talk that the proper practice, as St Paul says, is when a woman pr prays is to have her head covered. Now, in the Greek church, no one hardly does it except for the old ladies. So therefore, it's really hard when a young person comes in because all of a sudden everyone in the church will look at them. So it's very, very difficult. In the Russian church, in the Serbian church, it's more of a practice and therefore I would advise them when they come to those services to wear a um, scarf. In the monasteries in Greece, they don't allow women to come in without scarves, some of them the strict ones. In America, for example, in the elder Ephraim's monasteries, they actually have a rule that a woman must wear a scarf if they're going to enter the monasteries. And they have a strictness there. Elder Paisio said that's good because it teaches people, or because the parish priest can't do it, at a lot of times because he's in the parish, sometimes it's hard, but he said, but at least in the monasteries will show people this is the correct way, as much as it is to be covered, 
and people still come into church here with shorts, sleeves, men and women should be covered. You shouldn't wear makeup. When you invite people to come, tell them nicely. Say, um, when you come, if you're going to come to the talk and to the service, don't wear pants for the women. Don't wear makeup like um, lipstick because it's not good when they go and kiss the icon to see red things and also when they kiss the priest's hand and there's all red marks on there. It's rude, it's not right. And yeah, so men should be covered, women should be covered, backs shouldn't be, you know, to, to teach people. If they say, I don't like that, then you say, that's, that's okay, don't come. It's as simple as that. But I, I don't like it when I see people coming with that on them, it, it's really wrong. And as well, we should be covered. And when we pray, we should be covered. Some respect. Yes. Yes, in the epistles. Women should be covered, yeah. And men shouldn't have long hair, it says. And then that kind of contradicts and say, well, why do monastics have long hair? And there's some explanation which I haven't read, but <clears throat> obviously we have saints that had long hair. So it's not that they're going against the Bible, but there's some um, there. In the Greek church, it's more difficult, unless you go to some parishes where it's encouraged uh, but in the, in, the, in the Russian churches Serbian churches it's easier so you should try it. At home in your privacy it would be advisable to wear a scarf and you will see the difference because prayer is different when you wear when you cover your head according to St. Paul and St. Paul whatever he says it's what Christ says what God says simple as that people want to be feminists and people want to believe differently is no concern to me. But when they try and bring their feminism into the church, it's wrong. And I have no interest in that. I don't involve myself in arguments about that. When I came to the church, when I first came, I was around 25. I heard things that were all strange and alien to me. Things that I've never heard of before, just looked, they looked strange to me. But you know how I took it? Uh, I want salvation. So if I want salvation, then I will bow my head and submit. So when someone wants salvation, they're not going to look at, oh, why aren't women priests and why aren't this and why that and why should women be covered and why aren't men covered and all these stupid things. I mean, these people, this feminism has got to the stage where they're so upset that why God chose to become uh, a human and chose the male sex. It's that bad. So in other words, after a while which I think they already have, they're rejecting Christ as God because they can't cope why God chose the male sex to become man, as it says in the Paschal Canon. So they even get to that stage. And that makes me sick. Yes, anything? Any other questions? Dragon? Nothing? Mark, nothing there? Was it, was it, um, yes, go. Yes. Um, why is it, just a question, why is it called the prologue? I think it's a Greek word, prologos, but I don't really know what that word means. I think it's might be might be in the introduction in there what it means. 
but if people don't have time to read spiritual books but they just read the prologue, they will receive an abundance of food, spiritual food in the Orthodox faith, just even if they read that every day. And as I said, some people have it like a bit like a drug in a good sense. They say, I have to read it every day. It's just part of my life now. And um, they said in the beginning it used to be like it was used to, when I used to read it was like, oh, I'm only on page one and page two. Now they said they read it and it's like they're going to, it's like the three pages go very quickly and they don't feel time, but they feel um, help from the prologue. So that's why I bought around 10. I think most of them are gone now. Yes, George. The prologue is really good because it's compartmentized, like there's story there and there. You don't have to read the whole book or it's not a chapter. So it makes it sort of start and finish it just there in those three pages. And you take it for the day. So you read it, and then that day or whatever, or the next day if you're in the night, you, you take what you've learnt the next day and you just think about that saint, about what the fathers did in the desert and all these things. Saint Eustin Popovich said that, in his opinion, that Saint Nikolai's hymns are so great that they surpass, I don't know, this, this is what he said, they surpassed the hymns of Saint John the Damascene. And he's a great father of the church. He was the one who... who um, defended the icons, etc. But St. But Eustin Bovic believes that St. Nikolai's hymns that are sung in Serbian, I don't know how much of it's been done in, I think they've got some hymns in that book, and they actually cultivate orthodoxy in people that sing it. He's a great father that died around 1950-something. I venerated his relics when they, when they were brought to Belgrade in 1991. It's a great thing. Okay, and... Um, Anyone else? Just, um, you know how you said for time, say you wake up late and you don't have time to fulfill your prayer or fear. Do you need to make it up? Um, or you just, the next day you just say you don't do Strictly speaking, some of the monks, they make them up. But in the world, I've noticed that when people start to try and make it up, they become like, they make them crazy. They go, okay, I've got to make up this, make up this, make up this. And it becomes like... Um, a whole burden to them, etc. That's why I think the fathers say, look, um, you do what you can do. If you're waking up late continually, then there's something wrong. If, of course, you wake up here and there, you slept in, you're tired, or something happens, it's different. But when it's every single day, then there's a, or there's a problem there. But I think if you try and make it up, it, I've noticed from people that go, okay, I'm five days behind now, and I've got... 300 prostrations, I've got this and I've got that, and usually their eyes are opened up like Rasputin and their hair sticking up and they're just in a very, very... They're in a, they're in a horrible state. And I just say, forget about it. Just just attempt to do your prayer of the day. Helen. There's a certain way that you should be reading the Gospel. Just say you can read like daily, like a section of the Gospel, or the Gospel reading for that day. Should you be like standing in front of the white or sitting down, like for the proper day? when we hear the gospels in the church we stand that's why we say wisdom upright that means everyone stand up the epistle people sit so that's that but i think um, from what i've seen that people can do read them sitting down as long as they're reading them respectfully and also we have to be careful with our books because in the old days books were very rare and icons were very rare 
So when someone had an icon or a book, they really, really cherished it and had all... But today we've got just so many icons and so many books, so you just go to people's places and you see icons thrown on the kitchen table and there's other icons there and there's books on the chairs which shouldn't be because people's bottoms have been there and all these type of things, and I think we lose. That happens to all of us. We lose respect for the holies because it's just that we've got so much of it. We've got to be very careful. Keep your books in a place proper. Keep your icons in a place proper. As I said before, you have a container, a nice container. You open up and you put your icons in the container of all these little icons that you can... Because one day, you, uh, it happens to us, you go, I remember I got that icon of that saint and I just read his life. I want that icon, I want to put it in my icon corner, etc. You go through your icons, you put them in one area. You don't have to every icon you get to put them up. So when someone walks in your house, they get a heart attack. You just put up your icon corner and the icons that you want, you have, but you have them in a nice box and you don't put the box on the floor because it's disrespectful. You don't put the box in inappropriate places. You put it somewhere in a cupboard or in you know, your icon room or somewhere respectfully. And when you need them, you come to them. Uh, was someone else? Yes? No questions at all. Know our limitations that we've all got. All of us have mental issues to some extent and certain weaknesses. And it's better to do the safe way. A little bit and constant rather than a lot. Like people start off, they come into the church and read a lot and pray a lot and fast a lot. And like in romper room where they have the balloons, they let the balloon go. What happens? He goes, and all does the balloon flops down. You all used to watch Romper Room when you were young? Well, that's the same as some Orthodox Christians. They're like the balloons in Romper Room. They come and they just start reading and it's like they blow up like a balloon and and all of a sudden you see them holy-woly there and then all of a sudden they just go and they're finished. And that's not good. Little bit constant. That's what the fathers say. That's better than a lot and fizzle out. Okay, now. Sometimes it just could be ignorance. It could be ignorance. I've noticed, a, I've noticed a lot of people just don't know. They believe that that's what they should do and if they don't fast completely, they, mean they're gonna, they think they're going to go to hell or something and not realising that a lot of people were brought up fasting from young. And it's very easy for them. Um, but other people who were worldly um, and came to the church, say, um, you know, some people came to the church at 20, 25, 30, 35, have never fasted. So suddenly you're going to make them what? Have no oils um, and, and no meat and no this and no that, like for 50 days? And that's what he says here. And especially, and there's a little bit of a mental problem there, which most of us have anyway, it can make the person go into a mental crisis as well, and a physical crisis. Very dangerous. Build up slowly. You know, sometimes you might say, okay, I might do oh, this Lent, I will do the first week a bit, I'll do the last week, and the middle I'll do, um, you know, um, I might abstain from certain things. And then you see how you go. Some people might not even do the fast properly for the six weeks, 
I know people that, are, that have actually eaten eggs and cheese or milk, whatever, during a Lent. They did the first week, they did the last week, they did this, that. And by the end, when Easter was there, they were on the ground. They still couldn't do it. You see what I mean? So that way, if they did it completely, I would have to go and visit them in the, in the hospital, either the mental or the, um, or, or, or the general one, that's it. So it's very, you've got to be very, very careful. And some spiritual fathers lack discernment and they actually say it's good. That's it. Stand up, please. Thank you for your attention. Um, it, is, um, it is truly me. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, save us. I mean, and please don't force people to come because you can make them, you can bring problems. Some people just cannot cope with these type of talks. And, you know, you might say, oh, come, 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 and they don't really want to come, and then they come and they go and, like, have a bit of a, uh, a crisis. Don't force people. You might mention it and leave them be. You might say, oh, I go to a talk, and this and that. Leave it, and that's it. You don't have to go and ring them up and tell them uh, the talks that day, the talks this day, and keep on, I'll come and pick you up, I'll do this or that. Let them say to you, oh, I might come there. Let God's um, spirit work in them where they want to come rather than you forcing them and thinking that you're going to help them, but at the end of the day, you actually make them worse because they can't cope with it. These talks are, not, are very difficult, and they're not just meant for people who are you know, are not really understanding salvation. It's all alien to them and they can become quite disturbed. And that's why Christ would go out far away so that people who would come would make an effort and go all the way there. And as it says, no food and water a lot of times is why he had to feed them. That proved that they were interested. But when we do the magic carpet, what I call it, where we go and pick them up and then bring them and then we do all these things to help them, it, that doesn't help. Let them make an effort. When I went to Mount Athos, I went to Mount Athos because I wanted to get benefit and I suffered. I had, my, I had the wrong shoes on and they made blisters and I couldn't even walk and my bag broke and everything happened to me, but I got benefit. I spoke to Elder Pais, just got some advice there. Let people make efforts to come and prove that they want to come. 